Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Everybody and welcome to another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show. I'm your host Michael McCall, and I'm joined once again this week by Zachary Adam Meisenheimer. What's um What's my co-host ranking this week, Michael? In the power rankings, you're still number one. Sweet. That I still has the same uh, reward, right? Oh yeah, I, I haven't uh, cut back your your wages. You're still getting your hundred percent of what you were getting before. I might, might even give you might even give you Steve's share as well. That's how generous I'm going to be. Don't tell his mother-in-law, though. So, as is tradition now, we're going to be kicking off this episode by travelling around the world with Joe Corona. And, whoa, what a busy week. Football is back. And it's back in places that's not just Belarus. Yes, the K-League returned this week, returned on Friday in Korea. Things kicked off with Daniel Henry's Suwon Blue Wings going down to a 1-0 defeat to Jean Book Motors. And Daniel, Daniel doing what Daniel does, was reviewed for a, a handball in the box by VAR. It wasn't given. The more things change, eh? But... Did you watch any of it, Zach? Are you excited for K-League football? Uh, I'm happy and excited for Danielle Henry. Uh, I'd probably be a bit disingenuous to say I'm excited for K-League football. So yeah, no, I actually did not watch this. But I'm, I'm hoping to maybe make some, find some time to, uh, to watch. Uh, we'll see. But some of my life schedule has opened up some, some time, so we'll see if I can watch that. But the, I mean... I, we're going to talk about the Bundesliga, so when the Bundesliga comes back, I'm going to do everything. Yeah, I'm pretty back. sure you're going to be watching that, yeah. Watch that as much as possible. I mean, there, there were some interesting things from the, the Korean one. They were actually pumping in crowd noise into the stadium just oh, to kind of have some kind of atmosphere. That's, that's wonderful. You, do you like that? Or are you being oh, sarcastic? I don't, I don't know. It, it sounds nice, in theory. I don't know if... if I wonder, I wonder if the players enjoy it, and I wonder what it sounds like on the broadcast. But. Yeah, I mean, you, you could hear it on the broadcast, but it was faint. It was so, like, folk, I didn't watch it, but folk I was reading, they thought fans had actually congregated outside the, the stadium yeah. because it was that faint. I personally would rather just hear the, the players shouting, and I know there'll be lots of swearing and stuff that folk might, might not want to hear on TV, and some folk 
don't have an appetite for watching football with no fans. But, I mean, Don Garber's talked about there could be some different things tried broadcast-wise. I really would not be surprised to, to see MLS do this when, when they come back. Mm. Oh, yeah. They, they'll, they'll do something to try and match the empty stadium for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I had no interest in, in the K-League before this. So, I mean, even though it's the, the first league outside of Belarus to come back, I've still no interest in watching it. I know Daniil's playing there. I don't know anything about the league. I don't know anything about the team. I know that's a little bit hypocritical by me because I didn't know anything about the Belarus Premier League, but I've fallen in love with some sluts and it's I, I'm enjoying watching that. I just I, I just can't get excited about, about the K-League. Sorry. Is it because the K-League, all the teams are, are corporate names? Not Maybe it's like there's no names that jumped out at me. There was no club crest that, that jumped out at, at me. But a, a league that things did jump out at me this week, it's another league that was back on Saturday, was the, the Faroe Islands Premier League. I'm going to guess you didn't watch any of that, Zach. No, yeah, no. I watched two full games. Well, not full games because I, I missed the first half of one of them. But I watched two games on Saturday on YouTube streamed by a, a, a YouTube channel called Stay Home Football. So add that to your subscription list. But I genuinely thoroughly enjoyed what, what I watched. First off, I watched a battle between the teams that had finished in the top two positions last year. Last year's champions, K.I. Kluxuk, were playing B36 Torshavn. Now, B36 Torshavn are a team that have featured a, a lot in the, the early qualifying rounds of Champions League. So if anyone's watched that, yeah. they, they might know I've that heard, name. I've heard of them. Yeah. And it was an enjoyable game. Goals came late on. It was a 2-0 win for B36. And yeah, there's so there some good stuff there. And I thought that was the... I had, had a quick look online. I thought that was the, the last game and I'd missed the early games because that was at nine o'clock. But the, the timings are, are weird. And lo and behold, a second game then came on the channel. And it was by the team that I decided to adopt as supporting, which was Vikinger Gota. And the reason I went, went for them was twofold. One, their badge is fantastic. It's got a Viking on it. And to me, that, that was great. But also, they were from the merger of two teams. And one of the teams plays out of Lervik which is a lot like Lerwick in the Shetland Islands, which is a, a place that I've been to, and I, I love the Shetland Islands on, on my trip there. So I picked them as my team to support. Uh, they missed the, the qualification for Europe last last year. They were travelling to play AB Arger, and it was a nil-nil draw, but it was an exciting and entertaining nil-nil draw. I tweeted out that the games were on, and a, a few folk on Twitter started watching them, and... Like Gary that does uh, the From Away's blog for, for Halifax, me and him were chatting about it. And I pitched the idea of doing a Fatal Football podcast. He thought that was maybe a bit too niche. So we're, we're maybe going to do a section on, on future shows about Faroe's football. Uh, so, I mean, I'm pretty sure by the end of this, we will get you interested in the Faroes. Away, away with the Faroes, we could maybe call the, the website. Uh, you might not be interested in Faroe Islands football, but I know you are going to be interested in, in Bundesliga. That is another league that I genuinely have never had any interest in and I can't get excited for it. But they've, they've been given the green light 
to return next week, and that is despite some players testing positive in training. The, the league has talked about they know they've got a responsibility. They know that they've got the world watching and they know they have to do this right because if they don't do it right, it's going to set back not just this league but other leagues quite considerably in, in returning. And Dynamo Dresden have had to quarantine their team for 14 days now after two players tested positive at training. Now, they're in Bundesliga 2, they're bottom of Bundesliga 2, and they're going to miss the first two weeks of that season. For me, it's, it's damaging to come back too early and then have to suspend things again if things go wrong. And I know the league know that that is, is a danger. Hopefully nothing like that is going to happen. My fears will be unfounded. But I, I think it's a worry with, with what's happening with the likes of Dresden and then Cologne previously with some of their players testing positive. But the, the DFL have said today they're going ahead no matter what with, with coming back next weekend. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Uh, in one sense, from wanting to, to watch, I hope hoping to be able to watch some quality football. I would, I would love to watch the Bundesliga. From a world perspective, I can live without Bundesliga until next year or next spring or whatever. Um, if they're going to play it, I'm going to try and watch it uh, as much as possible. And it's going to be on Sportsnet across the channel, so not just Sportsnet World. Oh, then I'll definitely be watching as much as possible. That's going to be fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, lots of people don't... I, well, Dynamo Dresden has, a, I think, a bit of a unique flavor to their to their support, um, which might not be appreciated in all quarters. Because they're, the they're, Eastern, that, they're East German, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Except for the fact a few years ago, I think it was a cup match. It could, it could have been a league match. No, I'm pretty sure it was a cup match. They had an early, early cup match versus Dead Bull, and they, like, they literally threw, like, ahead of a... I think of a bull on on, on the pitch, <laughs> or you know, from the stands into the behind the net, which was which was great. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's unfortunate for them. I don't know what that means in terms of the fourteen uh, the fourteen days having to miss a couple games. Are, are they going to be like? Do they just get are those uh, forfeits then? Those well, no, because it's not it's not their fault, and they're already bottom of the league and facing relegation. So I mean the. The cynic or the kind of conspiracy theorist might say, oh, that's very convenient. That They might say they might not be able to play their games because their players are having to get quarantined because Cologne had players test positive, but they they haven't quarantined their whole team, but Dresden's quarantined their whole team. It'll be interesting to see what happens then in terms of, like, do they get to play those games at the end or whatever? Yeah. I mean... Well, I mean, like Austria, for example, like they've said, if their league comes back and any player on a team does test positive, then their whole team has to quarantine for 14 days. And I think that is right. Yeah, Austrians are pretty known to be pretty strict, I think. Yeah. In general. I mean, Austria and Germany, lots of close-knit connections there as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's some. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm interested to see with Cologne if they're going to have Hennis uh, at, the ma- at the matches. Do you know Hennis? No. I think it's. I think the current guy's name is Hennis. Uh, he's their Billy Goat, right? They're the Billy Goat. Oh. Guide box. Uh, oh, I don't think it can get passed on to goats. I think it was just tigers and cats, so he should be okay. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if Hennis is in the stadium. Hopefully he wears a mask. Now, we talked about Korea pumping in crowd sounds. Now, Borussia Mönchengladbach, they've been selling cardboard cutouts of supporters. It looks like full-size ones as well that's going to be in the stands. So that's, that's kind of a, a unique and fun idea. Yeah, you, you'd think with like all 
all the technology they have in terms of, uh, you know, all the advertising they can put on the screen that, like, covers up, you know, or glass in ice hockey or, like, even be, I know sometimes the side netting ones in football, yeah. uh, they do some technology, I think, on camera. You think that they someone's got to be developing some kind of thing to make the crowd, like, the stadium look full or something. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a lot of kind of unique things that, that they look at. Because all eyes are in Germany just now to, to see what it's going to be like. Is it going to be a success? Now, Soccer America, I'll give a hat tip to them. They got the targeted start dates for a number of European leagues. I, I won't read them all, but it basically starts off with Germany on May 16th. You've got the likes of Hungary being next and then the Czech Republic, Denmark, Poland. And it goes on and on and on to Finland on July 1st. So, I mean, so many of the leagues are looking at trying to get back but if things go wrong in Germany, then they're not going to be back. I mean, elsewhere in the world, Australia, Carl Robinson and co. will be looking at an August return, with training returning from July. In South America, in Brazil, their numpty-headed president, Jair Bolsonaro, he wants an immediate return of the league, angering many when he said that players had little chance of dying from the virus, so they should return. The players have issued a statement saying that their health is paramount to any return and it's still thought that it's going to be at least a month away, but there's some weird things happening down in Brazil just in general. Now, heading to the UK, Scotland's still a mess. Rangers revealed their dossier that they they threatened to reveal with allegations against the Scottish League and there were some interesting and some concerning things in that 200-page dossier Yeah, but the smoking gun that everyone was waiting for was not in it. There was just some mild allegations, nothing that seemed too drastic. It doesn't think it's going to do anything to make clubs vote for for their resolution. There's an EGM on Tuesday, so we'll we'll see what comes out of that. There's allegations of bullying and coercion and, like, favours and... Ah, it's just still a complete mess. In England, well... Still no decisions and things, as always, we're recording this on Sunday night. Things have come out on Sunday. Things are going to be out by the time you hear this on Monday. In the lower leagues, the rumours are that Monday or Tuesday, Leagues 1 and 2 will announce that their season's going to be over. Clubs are going to be asked to vote on how they want to decide the final positions with numerous options on the table, but the one expected to get the most support is that it's going to be a points-per-game formula but with waiting depended on how many home games they've already played home and away. No matter what way it works out, it looks like AFC Wimbledon are going to be safe from relegation. They were just above the relegation spots, so thankfully it looks like they are going to be safe no matter what thing that they look at. But there's still nothing on the Championship and the Premier League, but there's a number of clubs starting to speak out now in in the Premier League in particular, criticising this project restart and the rush to get the, the Premier League back. Watford's chairman criticised the plan for neutral venues. And a man that we know very well, Brighton's Paul Barber, he was concerned for player safety as a third unnamed player was tested positive at the club and is quarantined. Now we talked about Dresden and there's been a lot of kind of cynics saying well, yeah, Brighton don't want this to start because right now they're safe, but they've got a hell of a tough run-in that could see them drop into the relegation zone. It's difficult because no matter what they do, nothing is going to please every single club. That's the the only thing that's guaranteed right now. Yeah, I mean, 
all the, the stuff in Scotland that you've been sharing over the last few weeks and, and into England, which is obviously different. Um, it, it sounds like the, it's been really difficult to try and get everyone onto the same page. And it sounds like when the authorities do make a decision as to how things will progress or move forward, that there are going to be a number of different individuals and clubs disappointed for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And I, I totally understand it, and people are being accused of self-interest, and some of them are coming out and saying, well, yeah, we should have self-interest. Every club should have the interest of their own club at heart first. And it's difficult because they're talking, I, I talked about this when I did the show myself last week, they're talking about the league needs to return, not for money, but for sporting integrity. But yet the clubs at the bottom are saying they don't want relegation then because they're not getting to play their games at home with their own fans. So you don't have integrity then if you're doing that. And, I mean, FIFA, they've announced on Friday that they're temporarily changing the laws for any leagues that come back between now and I think it's actually the end of the year. And it's included allowing five subs in matches to help with player fatigue because they know that leagues are going to be playing a number of games in a short period of time. But you can still only make subs three times during a game. You can also make subs at half time, so that won't count as one of the, th- the three times. But they don't want the game to stop too much for, for five subs. Now, I, I think it's sensible to do this because there is going to be player fatigue. And I don't know, I wouldn't be too averse to them actually introducing five subs going forward just because I, I think it could be very interesting tactically and it would give a lot more players, especially young players, a, a chance to play in matches. Especially if they maybe mandated that one or two of the subs had to be, say, under-21 players. Yeah, I was going to say, that might be one thing that comes out of this, is to see how that actually gets implemented and, and used and to see if it is a benefit. Uh, it could be something that, that, that shapes football going forward. And the, the other big thing that came out of FIFA's announcement is that the league can scrap VAR if they want midway through a season. So if they started with it and they don't want to go ahead with the virus, they can scrap it. Or if they restart with it and then it's not working out for virus things, they can scrap it. But then folk are then saying, well, that's not fair. If you've had a club controversially earlier in the season lose points because of VAR, and then another club would have had something ruled out by VAR, but VAR didn't exist, and then the goal stands and they avoid relegation, then that's not fair. Vancouver could find a new way to get VAR. Oh, yeah. I mean, Not having VAR. There's just so much of this. It's an absolute minefield. And I, I genuinely do feel sorry for, for the leagues and the officials because they're trying to come back. Maybe some of them are trying to come back too soon, but they're trying to come back. And there's just there's just nothing that can appease everyone. And I, I, I just don't know. I don't know how you do this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that, that sounds really weird. I mean, yeah, I guess there are, uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, potential pandemic issues to be be considered but you think i'm sorry my understanding of how var works that there shouldn't be anything in how it's how it has been done or how it could be done that the pandemic should should cause it to no longer happen no i mean even if they decide to do it centrally or yeah. like the var guy's locked away in a room but on, on his own or whatever I, yeah i don't see how that would yeah it's just it's, it's a bizarre one 
So that is pretty much it for our, our roundup around the world, but we can't finish our roundup around the world without heading to the Belarus Premier League and our weekly update from our beloved FK Slutsk. We love our Slutsk, the greatest team in Belarus. We love our Slutsk, FK Slutsk. Well, I'm sure it had to happen at some time, but for the first time since we've been doing these Belarusian Premier League updates, our beloved FK Slutsk have lost. Going down on Friday evening to a 2-1 defeat to the Belarusian referees. Officially, it was to Energetic BGU, but anyone that watched the match or saw the highlights of it would know it really was the referees. All the goals came in the first half, and it was Energetic that went 1-0 up in the 17th minute in controversial circumstances. As Yuri Kozlov was adjudged to have given away a penalty despite clearly winning the ball and knocking it away in the box, not even really bringing down the man afterwards, but the referee pointed to the spot and up stepped Jasser Yakshabiev to drill the penalty home past Boris Pankratov to make it 1-0 to the visitors. Worse was to follow 10 minutes later when the referee gave a second penalty against FK Slutsk. Vitaly's Trebila adjudged to have committed a foul on the box, again a very, very harsh decision. Yakshibiev stepped up to drill it down the middle this time. Pankratov got his hand to it but unfortunately could not keep it out. It was 2-0 to Energic BGU and Slutsk were in a whole heap of trouble. But when they're in trouble, you can certainly count on Umar Bala Mohamed. And the Nigerian made it four goals in seven games, four in his last three, to pull one back for slots with four minutes remaining. Definitely a player that's impressed me in the opening weeks to the season so far. Hopefully Mark DeSantos is keeping an eye on the 22-year-old midfielder. The second half was fairly even with both teams having chances to add to the scoreline but neither could find the back of the net. But then Slots looked like they'd been thrown a lifeline in the 71st minute when Haik Mosehanian was shown a second yellow card and sent off for Energetic. Sluts turned up the pressure, had a couple of great chances to put the game to bed, unfortunately they couldn't take it, went down to a 2-1 defeat, and you could see at the end of the game how disappointed the Sluts players were. With the top of the table being so tight, just you had to feel that they were going to finish the weekend not on top. Technically they haven't. They're sitting in second on goal difference, Level on points, but now just behind new leaders Bait Borisov. Both teams tied on 16 points in the top five of the Premier League, just separated by a single point just now, after the first eight matches. The big game is coming up, though, on Saturday evening, Saturday morning our time, 9am. Watch it on YouTube as the top two clash in the match we've been eagerly anticipating for weeks. Will this be the moment that we can see sluts? Masturbate. Find out next weekend on the AFTN Soccer Show. So, what, what do you think about the big game then next weekend, Zach? Do you think that Sluts will masturbate? Wait, come again? Well, that might happen too. Oh my goodness, Michael! I think I would have if I was uh, if I was uh, to put uh, encourage someone to put money on this. I would go with Bate Borisov. Oh, boo you! Anyway, but that's it from our travels around the world with Joe. We're going to be staying at home with Joe in the next part, and we're going to be back with that right after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. 
Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. That was our Artist of the Month of the Month of May, Wales's Finest, the Super Furry Animals, with their third English-released single from 1996, Something for the Weekend. You can find that on their debut album, Fuzzy Logic. Another fantastic song from a fantastic band. So in part one of the show, we went around the world with Joe Corona, so that can only mean one thing. In part two, we're staying home with Joe. And we're going to be looking at some stuff coming out from MLS, USL and CPL in the current football shutdown. And it's looking more and more likely that MLS is going to return in some form. Words coming out could even be as soon as late June, maybe early July. Stephen Goff of the Washington Post, only the, the second best Goff who's covering North American football, <laughs> he, he tweeted out on Thursday that his understanding is that a couple of options are the ones that are still being looked at. One is that all teams will be based out of Orlando, most likely at the, the ESPN Sports Complex, which is, for me, the best site because you've got the hotels nearby, they've got some great facilities there, and it's it's quite remote as well it's not in the middle of anywhere that you're going to be attracting fans to to come along so you've got the weather there you've got ESPN as a broadcast partner there so I mean that makes a lot of sense so it's really whether Orlando goes it alone or whether there's some other hub cities and the two other cities that are being mentioned just now are KC Kansas City and Dallas They've both been thrown out as possibilities. And, I mean, obviously, if you only want to have two hubs and you want to have an east and a west hub, then you'd have Orlando for the eastern teams. The western teams could be KC or Dallas. Dallas, for me, would make a lot more sense because they're they're used to having no one in their stadium. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, it's, it's like they're, they're perfect for it. And it's in the middle of nowhere. Frisco, Texas is not an easy place to get to from speaking to people that, that's made that trip. So, I mean, that would possibly make a lot more sense than, than KC. I mean, what's your, what's your thought of that, of having hubs? It's, it's pretty obvious teams, at least for the, the foreseeable future, aren't going to play in their home markets. So if the only way to, to get the league up and running is neutral sites, do you think that's a good idea? Uh, well, I, I think it's Good that they're they're taking a look at the, the, you know the possibilities and the options. Uh, did the other golf? Did he um, did he say like June or July? That's like when they're going to uh, actual games are played. Or yeah, gonna, that's when they're looking at start. Tra- yeah, they're looking at starting the games then. So you'd be looking oh. at training returning at the end of May. Wow. Okay. Because I mean, it's it's the feeling is that teams would need three or four weeks of preseason in their own cities. But that in itself, in some cities, you're relying on the the local regulations allowing that. So, for example, right here in BC just now, that's not allowed. The Whitecaps couldn't do that. Now, that could they, they could make a an appeal to the BC government, and that could get lifted. And I, from overtures that that we're kind of hearing with regards to Vancouver being a, a hub city for the the hockey league. I mean, the government seem open to that. So, I mean, they might say, yeah, as long as you're taking precautions. Now, the precautions would be that players would need to be continually tested and if anyone 
basically test positive, then they're going to have to quarantine. If they move to the hub cities, then the players as well are going to have to be tested continuously and then quarantined away from everyone just in their hotels. So, I mean, there's still a lot of issues. One, the pre-season aspect. Can they do it? Places like New York and New Jersey, you have to think that's going to be a lot tougher than, than some of the other places. If they do get the go-ahead, if they can get quarantined, the one thing you don't want is these people getting tested ahead of other people that need to get tested. Yeah, I could see the public not being super enthralled about that. Um, That's the big thing in England as well, because there's not enough tests for the front line and the NHS workers, so why would you be giving sportsmen these tests? Yeah, it feels fairly similar in the States, right, in terms of yeah. not, they're not being as many tests as they want. I mean, depending on who you listen to, I guess. But. Oh, yeah, but then you've also you've got Trump who came out and was bigging up the, the UFC going ahead controversially with their no fans meeting on Saturday night. And Trump said on Sunday, sports needs to get back. Sport leagues have to get back. And it's like, it's, it's not as simple as saying they have to get back. There's all these other things that go with it. Yeah, I mean... You also have to get the players' union to agree to this. And I'd still like to see them make a stand because I think it's unfair to have players away from their loved ones for so long. And I mean, players publicly are saying, well... Whatever has to happen to get the league going, we're fine by that. But it's okay saying you're fine with it. Do that for three or four months and then see how you're feeling and see how your wife's feeling and how your kids are feeling not seeing you. Yeah, it'd be the reverse of what they've had over the last... Yeah. Or whatever, yeah. yeah um, feast or famine. I, I, that might soften the blow, I guess, of it. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's, uh, I don't know what's best. I, I kind of was... Uh, I, I kind of would be more excited about what we've talked about in the, the past, and I know what they have uh, at least uh, someone as uh, it was Don, Donny G, or whoever who expressed it. it's one of the things that they talked about in terms of like, like let's just have like a tournament to end this, like to to count as the season. Yeah, for me that would be great. It would be exciting as well, and to give the Whitecaps a a bit more of a level playing field because when it comes to knockout football, or it might be group stages or whatever. But you've got a chance. Yeah, for some people, just yeah, like a World Cup style group stage. Yeah, um, like that would be. To me, that would be more interesting if they're going to start playing games and you're going to watch an empty stadium on TV. Yeah, you know, TV for three months. Like, yeah, I guess I'll I'll probably tune in. But I mean, not to sound uh, I don't know what, <laughs> but not, I mean, for, for, there's there's meaning in this in the in the phrase. You know, football without fans is nothing. Yes. Um, and I, again, I'm not saying that to, to, to try and overinflate uh, the value of support of supporters and supporter culture, but like, uh, I'm not, I'm not super excited about you know there there being football in North America with no atmosphere. Oh well, yeah. You know? Well, for example, say Philadelphia Columbus. I have very little interest in watching that with fans in attendance. Never mind in an empty stadium. I also think it's going to draw an attention. Sorry, it has the potential to draw the attention to the actual level of the football. Yeah, you know, which um, you know has improved in the twenty-five year history, but still has you know still has a ways to go. There's going to be a lot of swearing heard, I think, as well. Yeah, hmm. but I mean, yeah. one of the cities that is interested in being a hub, as we said, there is Kansas City. And I jumped on a call on Wednesday with Kansas City CEO Jake Reed. 
And this was one of the, the things that he talked about and a few other things as well. So I'll bring you a little bit of audio from that call just now. How's it work with you and the league? Have you guys been through numerous different scenarios and you kind of start and then you have to stop and back up? Or is it just a pure holding pattern of sitting and waiting? Yeah. Saran, I've lost track of the scenarios we've been through. Um, <laughs> and I also, I don't ever want to do a Zoom call after this thing ends the rest of my life. That's, that's no disrespect to any of you all. I like all of you guys. But uh, yeah, you know, I think that's part of the challenge, right? It changes. It's changed so much. I mean, look back two weeks ago, right? We didn't have state reopening plans. We didn't know um, kind of a phase out timeline. You're starting to see all these come in now, particularly in, in our region amongst others. So Listen, I want to give the league a lot of credit to this. This is a scenario where they are in New York that is completely different than anywhere else in the country outside of maybe Seattle. And I think they've been really good at communication through this process, pulling the teams in for feedback. Uh, I'm on multiple league calls a day. I serve on multiple committees that we're trying to, to help navigate this from a team president standpoint. Um, but ultimately, I think what we're trying to do is, is put all possibilities on the table so that when we know we can jump one way or the other, we're ready and we're not trying to figure it out from scratch. So um, you've had everything from return to play in market, closed doors. What does that look like fading into to fans to a, a regional strategy of going to one city to two cities to four cities to, to try to get into an area where it's maybe not as impacted. So yeah, long-winded answer for you, but a lot of scenarios out there. Um, obviously we're all kind of at um, the, the mercy of this thing as it, as it progresses or hopefully the declines. And then ultimately the governments are, are really driving the process now from the state uh, and local level, and we've been in constant communication with, with them as well. But, you know, just trying to be prepared, right? As soon as we can do something, we want to be ready to, to go. Is there a lead scenario right now? Is there, knowing full well that everything could change, right? Everything could be shut down. But is there kind of a, a direction you feel like you're pointing towards right now? You know, not really. Again, this isn't really any inside scoop here. I, I just think the, the the thought of getting back as soon as we can, but it's safe to do so. You're starting to see that with individual workouts this week, which hopefully then transition into to group workouts, which then hopefully transition into, you know, likely closed door games to, to start it off, I, I think makes the most sense. Again, that's not any directive. That's just, just me as you've looked at, um, you know, both the, the political nature of it and the timelines and everything else. I think we'd all like to get back to, to deliver sports to, to fans. Uh, and if that's via broadcast versus via in person to start off, I think we've all agreed that that's a, a scenario we'd be supportive of. But outside of that, it's, it's so hard, right? You look at um, Kansas City, I, I think we could be ready to play closed doors and do group trainings. Um, in a month to, to six weeks, maybe, right? And again, it may be aggressive, but you're not going to have that in, on the coast. So I think part of the challenge from the league level is trying to figure out what the best route is that, um, you know, for the entire league, because every market is going to be so different through this thing. A lot of the leagues are talking about, uh, you know, kind of hub playing, you know, the, the Disney and Vegas plan for NBA and everything with Pinnacle uh, and the incredible facility you've got there. Uh, is there conversations about kind of a hub startup and is, is, Kansas City perhaps at the forefront of that? Yeah, definitely conversations. And we've had good talks about being in the mix if that's the route they go down. Um, I agree with you. I think facility-wise and infrastructure-wise, we're as well positioned as, as anyone. Clearly, uh, Disney and Wild World Sports has a massive complex, which is probably – um, best suited, but um, listen, from a hotel standpoint, when you got the downtown hotels with the Lowe's coming on board, which is brand new and no one's been in there, 
we've got plenty of, of hotel space if we needed it. Um, clearly out at the, the Legends as well, if you want to be in proximity to the, the facilities, but between, you know, Swope, between Pinnacle, uh, we've got, I think, plenty of, of surface to train on. And that's just counting grass, right? If you expand it out to uh, the Wyandotte Sports Complex, to the Overland Park uh, Shields Complex, I mean, uh, uh, we, we can definitely do it. We've had great conversations with the league, no indication of, uh, you know, where we would be in, in the, the hierarchy there, but we're certainly in the consideration set if they decide to go to kind of a multi-city uh, type of setup. Jake, to be considered for something like that, what are some of the boxes that Kansas City has to check in order to be uh, not just a, a front runner in something like that, but even considered as a location? Yeah, well, so I think there's the, the standard checklist, right, which is can you literally host the teams? Can you do the training? Do you have game-ready facilities to, to play in? And I, we, we check all those boxes in, in a big way. Um, I think these are good news when you look back on all the international games we've hosted. When you go back to 13 with All-Star and, and MLS Cup, I think we've just got a good – um, you know, history with the league on big events and working with the league on those. So I think there's a the built-in trust factor that, you know, this, this group can pull it off. And I give credit to Cliff and the ownership group. They've, they've been forefront on driving this thing. I mean, Cliff's on the executive committee with the league. So he's obviously beating the drum at every chance he gets for us. Um, but I, I think the league has complete confidence. We've never had an event here that's been anything other than exceptional in their eyes. And so I think that carries a lot of weight in the decision-making. Listen, I know safety is everyone's uh, priority, but you have to resist the urge. I mean, people are so thirsty for sports. If you can get back quickly, right? If you, if you can be the first one back and, and have center stage. I mean, obviously NASCAR, different different world, right? Different sport, but they're pushing the envelope as fast as they can to get back on and be the one thing. Is there a temptation there? Do you have to kind of check yourself and say, well, you know, let's slow down because it, it would be a – tremendous business opportunity if you were the only league yeah i'd say it's um it's something we're driving for right i think if you can be the first one back in an area where um outside of the last dance every week you don't really have a lot of uh, sports content to look forward to um it's yeah definitely would be something we would be extremely interested in, in being the first ones back if we can pull that out but i mean you know it's right it comes down to the safety protocol can we get the testing can we get the results can we can we do all the things that we need to make sure that we are uh, we're not rushing it back because if you rush it back and you screw it up, then you're you're going to be the last ones back, not the first. So clearly a, a methodical approach as we've we've kind of looked towards that. You have the K-League coming back this Friday in Korea. Next week, it looks like the Bundesliga might be coming back. How much attention are MLS going to be paying to those leagues just to see how they're going? Because Germany's obviously had some issues with testing of the players in the first few days back at training. Yeah, we, we, we've been in contact with everyone, right, from all the, the, the soccer leagues around the country. And, and, and frankly, you know, from a, a domestic standpoint, you know, we're, we're having constant discussions with all the sports leagues, right? So I, I give the commissioner and his office a lot of credit. I mean, they're, they're talking to the NBA, the NHL. I mean, uh, this is a, a great example of, although we all compete for, for dollars on some level from a, a league standpoint, this is a, a time where you've really seen, in my view, the leagues come together to try to work to, together to figure this out because, uh, again, no one has the answers. We're all looking at um, what the best way forward is. And so uh, definitely a sharing of ideas, definitely a sharing of what's worked, what isn't. Um, so, yeah, it, listen, I'll be interested to see. I, I read the, the news on the, the German League this morning. And, um, listen, I think that's, that's good to just watch and monitor and, and see how it goes. And ultimately we'll have some learnings from that, good or bad. Has there been any conversation about, you know, how far back you can move the season? I know you guys were just getting started, but is there a drop dead date? Is there talk of, you know, just shoving it back? And is there a, a point where you would just say, okay, 2020 uh, is over? 
Yeah, to, to start at the end, I, it would have to be oof, it'd be really bad if we just threw in the towel on, on 2020. Um, I, I just think that there's there's so much opportunity to, to get games. And I mean, frankly, if, if we could start in mid-June um, and you've got the, the date out there of June 8th, which at this point, yeah, who knows what that'll look like. But we, we could play a full season if we started in the next next month. Will that happen? Who knows? Um, I think it, as long as we could get something going on by by late summer early fall we could put together some semblance of a, of a season clearly you're not gonna get all 34 games in at that point in time but um yeah for us it's extremely important to do you got to change a bunch of things in that scenario right even right now if we started playing you're, you're probably looking at a a different setup for open cup whether that's you know do we play reserves how, how do we handle that you've got some of these competitions that you'd have to create some space for for mls matches being the priority uh, but short answer is we've looked at all those scenarios and as soon as we can get going, I, I think we can, we could still get the whole season right now if we start in June and as we go kind of 30 days further and further down, you start to clip some games off, but ultimately, um, we're going to do our best to get as many games in as possible, even if that's not until, you know, later in the, the summer or fall. So Jake Reed, KC CEO there, MLS players, they're allowed to return from midweek last week for individual training where local regulations allow. KC was one of the places where the players were back on the pitch. The players have to be kept away from each other. There's lots of restrictions and conditions. They have to, to make sure that they, they don't cross their individual quadrants and all the different stuff that they've got in play. Now, we're not allowed to do that right of now in Vancouver because the local reg- restrictions aren't allowing that. That could be changing soon. But that, that was something, another call I jumped on this week was actually with Axel Schuster. And that was one of the questions I asked him. We'll hear more from Axel later on in the show. But I, I wanted to know just what was happening with the, the whole individual training aspect here in Vancouver. So here's what he had to say about that. So there is a return to individual workout uh, procedure in place, and, and we are working on that. With we and we have to get approval by the local local authorities and health authorities, and we have to get the approval by MLS. And every team is asked to make its own plan uh, related to the local rules. So we are we are still working on on that plan because our idea was not to to rush and to try to get it in place in the way fastest and shortest way we want to get it in 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 place in the right way and and having a plan that that makes sense for our market and for our team but right now only to give you an impression that doesn't mean that we are allowed to kick a ball around so it's right now it's an individual workout return to individual workout means that that we are allowed to bring in the players to our pitch not to our facility, only to to our pitch at, at at UBC, and that they can, with respect to social distancing, uh, and with a very restricted number of players, four players in the same time on one pitch, every player gets a quarter. So in so in in this quarter, they can make an individual workout. What maybe is uh, no, what for sure is already a step ahead that in in relationship to doing that workout in in their condors. So you can do it, and for for sure it helps us all to to do it in a better controlled and 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 yeah planned way. Because I I I really I really address to the players also today to respect the rules and to be very careful. 
but if you are driving through our through our city you see if you only want to go for a run and and i spoke with one player who is also living in olympic village and who ran until to to granville island he said it's 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 not only him there are the 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 way the the road is packed of people so it's not that easy to do your run uh and 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 always to be two meters apart of everybody if you want to do it in the right way of course you can stop all the time and wait but that's not the way a professional player should do it so it will help to to, to get the thing, things done in a better way and and in a more secure way so I mean, it does sound like things are are going to be moving along a little bit anyway zach individual training is the first thing and then getting the players back on the on the training pitch from watching some videos from uh, around the league as well, the, the players, they've been itching to get back on the field, so at least some of them are now. So, I mean, the, the signs are hopeful. I mean, how excited are you at the thought of MLS returning with, with no fans? You touched upon it at, at earlier on in this part, but, I mean, if we're watching Whitecaps games, are, are you excited for that? Uh, not really, not really, to be honest. Mm. Uh, especially without the atmosphere. Um Colorado Rapids put out a tweet the other day um, of Kai Kamara reflecting on some of you know the yeah, most moments in his career that. or whatever, and so it got me. You know, the, one of the moments he talked about was the the Kai Kamara display that that we did. And yes, I have the jersey. Yeah, and so like for me, it was just like, and then some of the there's some you know some of the supporters I connect with were talking about some stuff, and I was just like, yeah, that's all exciting, but then it's kind of like. And then I read, you know, read some conversations with people being like, oh, you know, BC Place, like, it's perfect. Like, it's so big. We could easily get, like, you know, 15,000 people spread out across the whole stadium and stuff. And, like, uh, in one sense, like, I mean, there's a few uh, there's a few uh, layers to this for me. But in one sense, I don't, like, I don't want that. I don't, <laughs> that's not exciting to me at all. You know, like, I'm, you know, one person in, like, one section, you know, you know, spread yeah. apart by... I think you'd need to have, rows, like, and... yeah, one person per row because if someone wants to go to the toilet or the concessions or something, they have to squeeze yeah. by folk. Yeah. That just is not, like... That that is not super exciting, like, just in and of itself. And then you, then another layer is just, like, the, the way the support might happen in a scenario like that is limited or new, like, it's a new, a new problem to solve or whatever, like, not, not, I'm not super excited about that. No. So I guess we'll see. I mean, I'm not doing heavy lifting in that area anyways anymore, yeah. uh, really much, so um, it'll be interesting to see what, what people come up with. Um, I don't know, but it's, it's, I guess it's so anticlimactic, right? Like yeah. The, the unified uh, unified GA for supporters, it was this, was a significant thing to achieve and to begin to take place, and then to see that only happen for one game, and then it potentially turned into the stadium's empty, or yeah, it's you and your you and your row, or your little block by yourself. You know, it's a, quite a letdown, or quite a quite a come down from from where things are at. Takes me back to my East Fife days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or my VMSL games. <laughs> but I mean, USL—they're still looking at possibly coming back in July. The CPL—I mean, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago but seems to be gathering a little bit of traction that West Hill Stadium in Victoria or they could be hosting all the, the CPL teams and, and playing games or a tournament or, or something out on the island 
Yeah, I heard that again. I can't remember where I heard that again this, this past week. Um, I mean, that's an interesting idea. Uh, it, there's a whole bunch of things that might make it you know, meaningful in terms of uh, the job that Pacific has done out there in terms of the stadium and in terms of the practice facility. Uh, so, you know, there's some, there's some pros there. I know I've heard, like, from people in CFL cities, uh, sorry, CPO people in, in CFL cities, that, like, for example, like Forge, I don't think, like, Forge can, um, can train at their stadium because it's city-owned and, like, everything's uh-huh. shut down kind of thing. Um, and it might be similar in Winnipeg. Um, I'm not sure, and or Edmonton. Well, I'm sorry, Edmonton's different. Um, but in, in Winnipeg. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that that is more exciting to me than maybe three months of MLS playing in empty stadiums in Dallas. Um, but a tournament at West Hills, you know, that could be that could be exciting to follow. Yeah, and the, the other big news that that's been coming out in the, the last week or so for, for CPL and CFL is both leagues have asked the government for some money to, to help them through this crisis. The CFL asking for $150 million. The CPL asking for $15 million. And the CFL were facing government questions on Friday and they did not bring along their players' union. And that was one of the questions that was flagged up. It's like, well, why is the players' union not here? We want to hear from the players. We want to know what you're doing for the players. And interestingly, one of the words that was thrown about was that the the owners do look after the players. They're very philanthropic. So there's that philanthropy word coming out again. It's like they should be grateful that we're giving them a a league to play in 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 their own country. Which, I mean, I strongly disagree with on a number of terms. But I, I do get in a little bit of where they're coming from. But, I mean, they've been told to go away and come back with a better business plan because it seemed that they didn't have any business plan at all that they're putting forward and to have their players' union. Now, obviously, there's been all this stuff about the CPL players' union getting formed. If the CPL are going to head along to government looking for money, they're going to get the same thing thrown at them. It's like, well, where's your players' representative? So that could be a, a, an interesting turn of events in that regard. And the owners to say, yeah, no, we want this, we want this union to happen, so it can help us make a better application to the government for for help in this this uh, the era we're in. That, that's really uh, that's, that's interesting. I mean, if, um, what's your thoughts just on on football leagues going for government bailouts, government money? Well, I, I well, to be honest, I don't know if I would make a, a total at this point. I don't know if I make a total blanket statement on things. I think. I think there's a reason, there's a validity to look at things on a case by case basis, and I know that that is probably favorable favorable to something like the CPL. Yeah. And the reason I would say that is it's a brand new league, right? Like it's not something that is you know even fully established in the communities they're in. You know, like uh, and and also the because of the cost, uh, you know, that fifteen million is uh, you know is is not even well with Ottawa is nice is not even two million dollars a team right which yeah is in essence is the majority of their operating budget for the year I've been told yeah I think it was one to three million dollars what you need to plan for your operating budget for the year so so I understand why they're asking for that amount 
um, whether or not they can justify that to the government is a is another question. But I think yeah. having having a player's having a player's voice there would definitely go a long way based on what this, the response the CFL got. Yeah, I mean, one of the the ministers said he'll be saying exactly the same thing to the CPL. So at least they're yeah. they're forewarned, and if they go without that, then that's not going to be good for them. No, and remember, this is partly happening because there is an element of a symbiotic relationship between the CFL and the CPL, right? Yeah. With, because of Winnipeg and because of uh, Scott Mitchell, right? Scott Mitchell in the CPL is the, the is the individual who helped push this forward and make this happen, uh, not just out of a vision and not just out of a will, but uh, out of finances. Uh, for those who may, who may or may not, those who may not know, he is the financial backing of, of Halifax as well as Forge FC. So, oh. um, yeah, so there, you know, there's at least three of the, three of the original seven teams um, are backed by CFL money. And there might be one other one that I'm just forgetting about, but those, those three, for, those, uh, those ones for sure, those three for sure. So, so how, as the CPL go, or as the CFL goes, that impacts the CPL at least, at least a little bit. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I don't know when they're meant to, to go and speak to government, but I'm sure it's going to be pretty soon. And yeah, we'll see what the what the next week brings because things just are moving so fast right now and just changing on a daily basis, really. Yep. I know the players from all the teams are just really wanting to, to get back on the pitch as soon as they can. And it, it is tough for them because this is this is their life, this is what they know, this is what they do on a day-to-day basis and their whole routine and everything has been taken away from them. And it's it's hard for them all. You have to also spare a thought as well for the, for guys at various clubs that have just arrived at their clubs, just arrived in their cities and still getting to know their teammates, still getting to know their, their new environment and, and everything and then all of a sudden they, they end up in lockdown. We've got that here in Vancouver with three players, Leo Obuso, Janio Bikel and Ranko Veselinovic. Now I spoke to Janio a couple of episodes ago. he just arrived, had a couple of training sessions, saw some time on the pitch against LA Galaxy and then in lockdown. I mean, the situation's even worse though for like 21-year-old Serbian centre-back Ranko Veselinovic. Ranko came to the Whitecaps on loan for this season from FK Vojvodina in the Serbian Superliga. There's a big delay in getting all his paperwork sorted out with Canada immigration and everything. He'd finally arrived, was just looking forward to getting up to speed with the rest of the team. We are all looking forward to seeing what he could do in the pitch. Hasn't had a chance to show that yet. So, I mean, how is he coping with, with everything just now? And, and does he regret making this move? What, what made him want to, to come to MLS and to Vancouver in the first place? Well, I got a chance to chat with Ranko on the phone this week to ask him about that look at his background over in Serbia, and a few more things beside. So let's hear now from Ranko Veselinovic. First thing to to ask you, I mean, you've just basically arrived in Canada, you've just arrived in Vancouver. As soon as you arrive, you end up with a lockdown situation. What's it been like for you trying to deal with this just now and get used to 
not just coping with the virus, but also coping it with living in a whole new city and country. Yeah, but it was a weird situation. You know, I just came, I did three practices, I think, and then everything stopped. Everything uh, was going to lockdown. But everyone in the club, staff, players, every 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 man and woman in the in the club helped me to to adapt. Uh, as much as I can to this situation. So now, now I'm in a, my apartment. I'm doing what everyone else doing. You know, staying in my home, staying safe, staying healthy. That's the most important thing. Staying fit. That when we come back, I, I can I can uh, play my games. So that's the stuff. You know, everyone now is the same position as me. So we need to stay fit for for our for our challenges that are coming after this situation and are, are you over here on your own just now or are you over with like a, a girlfriend or a wife or anything like that no no, no i'm alone i don't have i have a girlfriend in serbia i'm alone ah, here okay um, yeah. you've had very little time to kind of get used to to your teammates and stuff but what what was it about coming to to major league soccer and coming to Canada that was attractive to you? Why why did you decide to make this move? Well, uh, honestly, I didn't I didn't know much about this league maybe three or four months ago. But when I first time spoke with, with uh, Marco Santos, our, our boss, uh, he really represents me in the league and the club, and then. He represented me a city and I really liked it and started to be really interesting and see that this league is really growing up in all aspects. You know, it's more and more popular, uh, the, the conditions for the game and uh, clubs are really, very organized and I, and I really liked it, you know. And uh, I, I figured out that this is a really good opportunity for me and uh, that... I can make progress in my career and in my development here in, in Vancouver and in MLS League. And I really think that uh, league is really good and I am looking forward to start playing it. And I, I know it's obviously been frustrating. You've not been able to, to play any games yet, but also the delay in coming yeah, yeah. here. I mean, the delay in coming here has also been frustrating for you, I'm sure. Why did it take so long for all the paperwork to get sorted out? Uh, yeah, it was frustrating, but I don't know why it takes so long. It's it's kind of the rules, you know. Yeah. I have to do a lot of paperwork to to wait for my visa, and it really gets frustrating me. But I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy that I be able to get here because uh, before this situation, you know. And now I'm here. That's the most important thing. And now yeah. we're in lockdown, but I need to be patient, you know, because I hope soon this all be done and we can back to, to the field. Now, we haven't had a chance to see you You play here. A, a lot of us will have kind of seen little clips on YouTube or whatever. So for anyone that doesn't know much about you, how would you describe your playing style? Or do you like to, to play with the ball at your feet? Are you quite an aggressive centre-back? Yeah, I like... I like... I like to play with a ball in my, feet, in my feet. I like when my team has possession. You know, I like to play from the uh, back line. And of course, uh, I had Instagram live yesterday, and I told that I like to play closer to the half opponent. You know, to be uh, to to put the 
defense is much as higher from our goal. You know, that for me, that's the modern football. The central backs today have, has to know play when our team has has the ball. Uh, you need to to make game behind the ball. You know, that that's really important in today's game, and I like to play in that way. Now. One of my friends here is a, is also Serbian and he's very passionate about football and me and him talk a lot about football and over in Europe and we've watched some games of Serbia playing and I know what the passion is like over in Serbia for football. What was it like growing up there and, and playing the, the game as a kid? Yeah, but in Serbia everybody likes football, you know, everybody yeah. is really passionate it's in Serbia. I mean, football is everything about winning. You know, when when you win, everything is great. When you lose, the the situation is tougher. Fans are, are really strict in Serbia, and it, it wasn't easy to play in, in that environment, in that league. When 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 you are young young player, you know, it's a lots of pressure. It's a lots of lots of tough situations. You know that you have to deal with it. But we we grow up in, in that in that environment and we, we used to deal with that pressure and all of this stuff. Yeah, and I, I guess when you were growing up you missed all the the, the stuff with the wars and, and things, but I mean, what was it like as a child playing football there? Were, were the facilities good? Well, here here uh, facilities and stadium are on much high level, you know, here is everything newer, everything is better. In Serbia, uh, Serbian league has problem with that, you know. The many stadiums are bad, many pitches are bad, and facilities they don't put so much uh, money in, in it, you know. That side, football in Serbia is in problem, you know. We need uh, uh, a much, a much, re- much changes in in that side of football, you know. Yeah, the Serbian Superliga again. That's going to be a league that not many people know very much around. How, what is the quality like? I mean, it, you've maybe not seen much of MLS, but I mean, how do you think it compares to MLS? Well, I think uh, MLS is faster, you know. It, it's more transition in their game as, as much as I can see. Uh, but Serbian League is a little bit uh, physical lead because uh, there's a lots of defense, there's a lots of fights, you know, everybody uh, goes, everybody goes for a win, you know, the most important is result and many teams, many teams who are, who are weaker than, than our team, they just defense, you know, they don't care if, you do, if they don't have much ball because they only, they only need points and result, you know. And you, you've made some appearances for Serbia at, at youth level and un, under twenty three, under twenty level. What what did it mean to you playing for your country? Yeah, that, that I said many times those those games are, are most beautiful games for me. You know, when you when you go there to represent your country, when you sing anthem, uh, when you know that your families, your friends, whole country watches you, that's something special. And I really like those games and. It really meant to me in my experience and in in in, in many way in many ways it helped me to to grow up in my personality, you know. Yeah, and I mean, when did you know that you wanted to be a professional footballer? Was it something that you wanted to do from a, a very early age? Yeah, I liked the football from my youngest age. You know, I started to train when I was six year old. 
and I really liked it from 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 the beginning. Of course, uh, in the first period it was just game. You know, my parents always told me that I need to be good at school. You know, they didn't they didn't want me to just go from the young stages to to go to football. You know, you never know how it's gonna be. But uh, when I when I was go to the to the close to first team in my club why wouldn't i started to think yeah maybe maybe i i can be the professional footballer and obviously you're just here at the moment on a on a one year loan and i mean no one really knows what's going to happen with this season or beyond that but from what you've seen yeah. so far do you think this might be a place you'd maybe want to stay for a couple of years yeah of course that's my goal here to to play those Twelve games, which I have to play to to uh, activate my contract here, and that's my goal. And I really uh, want to stay here for for uh, many years after my loan. Club, it's really great. I really mean it because everyone here in the club are really good to me and really help me to adapt to this new life. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for your time today, Ranko. I hope you're staying safe and hopefully we, we get to see you play in a Whitecaps jersey real soon. Good to chat with Ranko there. Nice to see that he is settling in fine and that the club have really looked after him. Hopefully we will see him on the pitch sooner rather than later. But who knows at this stage? Looking forward to seeing him anyway. An interesting little tidbit that he revealed there. If he hits that appearances, then his contract is triggered and his loan deal will become a permanent move to Vancouver. So an added incentive for him there. So we'll see what this season brings for Ranko, the Whitecaps, MLS and everyone else. We're going to be back with our feature interview for this episode and kicking off our three of a kind competition for this week as well. We'll be back with all of that after this. Hi, I'm Alfonso Davies, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. That was the wonderful Blur and a song called Beetle Bum, the opening track from their 1997 self-titled album Blur. That was also the first of tonight's Three of a Kind songs. Now for anyone that didn't listen to last week's show, what I've decided to do, maybe just for this month, we might keep it going for a little bit longer, is the songs that we're going to play that introduce parts 3, 4 and 5 
are all going to be linked in some way. Your job over the next couple of parts is to, first of all, work out what that link might be. And in some of the cases, you might get it after the second of the three songs. And if that is the case, try and work out what the third song might be that we're going to play at the start of part five. So what could the link be this week? Stay tuned to find out. It's time now for our feature interview of this week's episode. And I'm delighted to bring you a chat I had this week with a very good friend of the show, a man that we've known for a number of years now, former SFU clan, WFC2 and FC Cincinnati head coach, Alan Koch. Alan is currently down in Colorado, was announced as the new head coach of Colorado Springs switchbacks towards the end of the 2019 season got his new team off to a winning start in the first and only week of the USL season that has been undertaken so far. And there's still no timeline yet as to when USL might be returning. League president Jake Edwards has kind of hinted at looking towards a kind of July return for the USL Championship and USL League One. As we talked about on last week's show, USL League Two season has already been cancelled. Allen's Colorado Springs switchbacks are a team in the USL Championship. And they haven't made the USL players for the last three seasons. So definitely a a tough job and a nice project ahead for Alan. So we're going to bring you this interview over the next two parts. This part we're going to look at Alan's career at SFU, his move to the Whitecaps and WFC2, and then his move to FC Cincinnati, taking the team from the USL, breaking records, making headlines along the way, into MLS... And I think, yeah, fair to say a tumultuous time that he had out in Ohio. But we'll look at the good and the bad times there, and his other successes along the way. And in the second half of this interview, we're going to chat about his move back to the USL, what he's hoping to achieve down in Colorado, the squad that he's built, which includes a a Canadian contingent, and a couple of other well-known names to Whitecaps fans, and a few more things beside. So go grab your favourite hot beverage, a chocolate digestive, and sit back and listen to our first part of our chat with Alan Koch. Colorado, Colorado, beautiful place that you are. Feel the sorrow of tomorrow before you go very far. Thanks for joining us today, Alan. Our first question really to ask you is how are things down there in, in Colorado Springs? From from what I've been reading about different things over in, in the US, Colorado seems to be doing things quite well. And I saw that the governor there was actually given an A rating for his handling of the current crisis. Yeah, it seems like things are going okay. Uh, we obviously are keeping on top of US media, Canadian media, global media and uh, it seems like in comparison to some of the other states in the U.S., uh, things are going quite well here. Uh, I think people here, for the most part, uh, are making smart, logical decisions, and hopefully we can all ride through this together. And I, I know from speaking to, to different people here at the Whitecaps and then elsewhere throughout MLS and, and various places, I mean, everyone just is itching to, to get back going and it's, just, it's frustrating being stuck at home. I know last week the USL issued a, a extension to the training moratorium to May 15th and they haven't put any date as to, to when they're looking for the, the season to return. 
But with Colorado doing so well, I'd imagine that you guys might be able to to be one of the first teams that gets back into training. Yeah, we're we're planning on it. Um, obviously, we have to comply with league rules and and state rules too, and make sure we're making the right decisions for the well being of our players and staff. But we're we're optimistic uh, that we're going to be doing something in some sort of capacity uh, by the end of next week. Um, so right now we're we've been shut down for getting close to two months. Uh, I think the guys are chomping at the bits. You you give uh, anybody the opportunity to do anything, even if it's just individual based work uh, at the training ground. Uh, I think everybody will will arrive with a smile on their face. So we're we're optimistic. You know, obviously we all have to make the right decisions, but we we feel like there's a little bit of light at the end end of the tunnel in terms of being able to do some form of training. Uh, what that relates to in terms of playing games, uh, I'm sure that's still some time away. Uh, but our players are, and I speak for our staff and I speak for myself, we, we all cannot wait to get back uh, working because we've tried to be as creative uh, as we can be during this time of working remotely and, and isolation. And I think I think our guys have done a very, very good job of staying calm and patient through the process. Uh, but you know everybody would just love to be out and, and going to work and, and trying to prepare for hopefully some games in the near future. Yeah, and I, I, even when it does return, I know things are going to be very different to, to what it was before you went off. And obviously you guys had started this season and we'll, we'll come to a, a chat about the, the switchbacks later in this chat. But just now, I know your wife's down there with you down in Colorado. What's your kind of average day? What does that look like for you just now? Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, I'm very fortunate to have my wife here with me. I think uh, being down here by myself would have been would have been challenging. I think yeah. anybody being by themselves is, is challenging. And our family spread all over the place. Our youngest daughter's back back in Vancouver. Our, our oldest daughter's in Ireland, and thankfully mm-hmm. they're managing okay. Uh, but we're we're here just trying to be responsible citizens and and hope hope everybody gets through this uh, as quickly. Uh, time frame as we can but uh yeah we have our good days we have our bad days uh, i think like everybody does there's there's days where you feel like you're uh, you're getting a bit of cabin fever mm-hmm. uh, we're here in a nice apartment but we have a house back in vancouver and probably the only time in my entire life i could safely say i'd love to be outside doing some work in the garden or <laughs> cleaning the gutter cleaning the gutters or, or doing any of those chores that i would normally hate to do and i certainly wouldn't have any positive enthusiasm to do but I would uh, I would gladly be doing things like that right now, which uh, I'm sure uh, hopefully people that are, are in their houses and, and have a little bit of spare time, they're probably utilizing it in, in a positive manner. Yeah, I, I'm glad I have a dog because it, it gets me out. It forces me to kind of go out and get some fresh air as opposed to just kind of sitting in. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting when things do return. Obviously, we've known each other for a, a number of years, going way back to to your SFU days. And one of the things that is quite good from this time is it's given me the chance to kind of sit down with people and kind of do kind of career retrospectives and just look at everything from start to finish. So um, we'll do that with yourself today. I mean, we'll kick off with, with SFU. I mean, it seems an age ago now that, that I was watching your teams up at SFU up the mountain and... I mean, looking back at those times, it must be still some of the happiest times of your coaching career. The success that you had with those group of guys making the final four in 2012 and 2013. I mean, great, great achievements. It's, you know, it's bizarre that 
I appreciate the support along the journey. You're you're one of the few people that have uh, been there, and we've chatted through through SFU and through the Whitecaps and Cincinnati and now Colorado. So yeah. I, I firstly I appreciate the support and, and I thank you for that. But what's incredibly bizarre is this morning I was on a Zoom call with the SFU team, huh. um, which I've been doing a lot of interviews and a lot of podcasts, and that was one that was probably one of the most enjoyable ones I've done because I, I wouldn't be where I am today without SFU. SFU is a player 25 odd years ago. I'm feeling old. Um, but obviously starting the coaching journey there as an assistant coach and, and then through those magical seven years as a head coach. So it was it was fun just catching up with the coaching staff and the players. And uh, Clint asked me to, to discuss winning mentality. Uh, and I think that's something that we, we really, really focused on when I was at SFU, and it's something that uh, I was fortunate to have there. We won a lot and have been able to carry that over into other environments too. Yeah, I mean, it's been a strange couple of seasons for the clan because they they run away with the, the division most of the time, which they did back in your day as well. And then the playoffs, it's just, I don't know whether it's just not getting tested enough during the season that they then face these teams or... I mean, obviously, we talked at the time the frustration of not being able to have home games at home. I mean, all those scenarios. I mean, I know you've kept in touch with the team the last couple of seasons and you won't want to say too much because Clint Schneider is a, a good friend and he, he's doing a good job there. But what do, what do you think it's going to take to kind of push the team to, to maybe make another deep run in the playoffs there? What I probably couldn't say when I was there as a head coach, but I'll say it now, is a level playing field. And it, it's great that the NCAA allowed a non-American institution in, in SFU to come join the league. Uh, I think it's, I think it was a smart uh, approach on their behalf. It added diversity to NCAA Division Two, and I think it was an awesome idea by SFU to go in and join. It, it's so unique being the only Canadian school that offers a great education from a Canadian perspective, but the players get the experience being in the U.S. collegiate world, uh, which is, is very, very special. Um, but I think something that definitely hinders the soccer program and a lot of the sports up at SFU is the inability to host games in the postseason. Even when you, you earn it and you deserve it, you're not able to do it. Yeah. Uh, and it makes it makes it very, very difficult um, because if you have to play away all the time, yeah, we, we managed to have success in 2012 and, and 2013 when we went to the, the Final Four, but my last year in 2014, we, we lost in the first round. Uh, on the road, and it's it's not easy for for a team like SFU that has such a strong academic university behind it for these players to be traveling all the time. Uh, it wears you down significantly during the year, and if you earn the right to host, you, you should be able to host. Um, so I would implore the school to continue to push for it. I would implore the NCAA to, to have open minds and open hearts because I think it was very beneficial for them to allow non-American institutions to come join the league. Uh, but now that you've had a school and, and certain teams at the school have success, they deserve to, to be rewarded by hosting. And I think if you, you do host, obviously in a lot of sports, and our sport is one of those sports, when you do have home field advantage, it, it does set you up for success a lot of the time. Um, so I think the team can go on the road. I think you have to have a certain mentality and a certain strength as a group to have success on the road. Uh, but if they do earn the right to host, they should definitely be allowed to host. And when, when I look back at those teams in 2012 and 2013 and some of the, the players, 
I mean, there's a frustration as well. And it was the same with UBC at the time, who were doing really well. You had these guys coming through and there was just nowhere for them to go. And obviously the whole soccer landscape's changed now throughout North America and especially here in Canada with the Canadian Premier League. But you look at some of the guys, I, I still watch Carlo Basso scoring lots of goals in, in the VMSL regularly. But that feels like it was a kind of generation that missed out on the chance to be professional footballers. Yeah, it is. You know, timing and life is everything. And unfortunately, I think we had some excellent players at SFU then, but UBC also had some excellent players. And, and other programs uh, around BC also had quality players. And I think, unfortunately, those players uh, uh, didn't get the opportunities you would love to have seen them get. Um, and that's a, a certainly a little bit of a negative. But unfortunately, the, the CPO wasn't in place uh, for those players. And they almost do feel like a little bit of a generation that uh, missed out. Thankfully for uh, the next generation, the players that may be five, six years younger, they're getting opportunities that the older players didn't get. Uh, and I'm a firm believer is players need opportunities to grow. Uh, and I think that's a positive byproduct of the CPO. And wherever Canadian players or any players for the matter can get opportunities, that's when you're allowed to flourish. And if you don't have those opportunities, it's very, very hard for players to achieve their goals. Yeah, and I mean, you left SFU to go to, to Whitecaps too, and that was meant to be one of the bridging gaps. And we won't talk too much about the time at the Whitecaps because we, we spoke so much during your time there. But I mean, looking back on those times, that first season it was tough for everyone. I mean, you're building a team at the last minute. You, I mean, just in general, the, the two years that you spent there, was it a weird feeling to be a coach of a team, but yet you didn't have the overall say in the team because Robbo would be telling you what players had to play or who had to get these minutes and maybe you didn't know what players you were going to get until the day before a game. Yes, and I think particularly in 2015. Uh, I, I started working with the Whitecaps and helping Robbo and the staff in 2014, starting the scouts already for the, the January draft. Um, so I was around them. I was at training with the first team and, and we started building relationships, uh, which was a big positive. But I think that first year in terms of, I only got the job, I think it was late January, I believe. Yeah. Um, and really just having to work with what we had. Um, we just had young players there at our disposal, uh, which I love playing young players, but it takes time for young players to, to learn how to win in the professional game. Uh, and then it was just a mad scramble to see what we could add to the group to supplement it. And uh, the part that I really place a, a big value on uh, in development is not just the young players. It's who do you surround those young players by? Uh, and we didn't have those players in 2015. We we were scrambling. We had a few decent players. We just didn't have enough. But having the extra time to prepare for the 2016 season is really what set us up for success. And that, that's you'll probably hear me say a lot about that, but Preparation is everything in this business, mm. but you need time to be able to prepare. Uh, and having that extra time and suffering, to be brutally honest, in, in 2015 we suffered. Oh yeah, we, we lost games. We lost games that were not fun to lose. And I'd come from uh, maybe in the previous 10 years, I'd lost less games than the number of fingers I had. Um, and we we lost a lot that year. But suffering like we did, uh, we learned a lot from that. Uh, and I personally learned a lot from how important it was to have a strong, uh, experienced spine. Uh, and getting that spine the next year uh, allowed us to have more stability as a group, 
but it really allowed the younger players to, to flourish. I think also another year as a club between working with Robo in the first team, myself and my style, and then the academy program, it really allowed us to figure out the best way to help players progress through that system. And that's what allowed so many of those young players to, to push on. And not many of have made their way to the Whitecaps first team. Yeah. A lot of those players, a lot of those players have made their way into professional football. And, and that's, that in itself is a huge achievement. And, and obviously we all know the, the great positive stories of Alfonso and he's the shining, the shining light, but he came through that group. Um, so I think that group was highly successful, not just in our results, by but going as far as we went in the playoffs in that 2016 season, but also in terms of developing players. Those young kids just got better right in front of our own eyes. Yeah, and so many of them are now t- together on the island with, with Pacific FC and doing well, and it's from that, that time spent at WFC too. And yeah, I mean, you touched on Alfonso there. I mean, you'll always be the, the coach that gave him his first professional minutes. And what was it like working with him back then? I mean, it was clear he had something special. Up when I saw him playing for the residency, it was clear he had something special. And then seeing him just turn it on in the pro environment, it was maybe a couple of games before he kind of clicked. And then once he did click, you, you knew this was a guy that was going to go far. You could tell right from the very beginning. You, you knew he was destined for something. I think anybody who says, oh, he was destined to be great right away the first time they saw him is uh, uh, exaggerating a little bit because you can never really tell, but you could tell you had a special kid on your hand. Yeah. He wasn't phased by he wasn't phased by anything. Yeah. He would be in the U, U16s and he'd go out and he'd play with a smile on his face. He'd do it in the U18s. He'd do it in the USO. He'd do it in the MLS. Um, but his mentality was just different. He was a kid who... I loved having chats with him because you almost had to pull him back all the time. We would be training with the USL group, and he'd be like, "Well, could I go train with the U16s this afternoon?" Yeah. And at, and at, and at first, you're like, "Well, no, that makes no sense. We we want to monitor your workload and make sure we're doing all the right uh, sports science uh, things." But there were certain moments where you just had to manage him for being a young 15 year old. It was like, you know what? Go back and train with your friends today because you wanted to keep him happy because he was doing everything we asked him to do. But you had to make sure you took care of his mental health at the same time. Uh, we, we could have broken him by pushing him on too quickly. And I think that's why at first uh, I had him on the bench a few times. We increased minutes. We included him. That sometimes we sent him back to, to the youth program. Uh, and I think it's, that, it's almost you go two steps forward, one steps back, another two steps forward, one step back. But you're still going forward. We had to hold him back at times, but you could tell he was ready to sprint. And it's, uh, it's been fascinating and amazing to, to watch his career growth and incredibly excited and, and happy from where he's heading yeah definitely seems to be on a non-stop upward trajectory i i actually remember being at wfc2 training one morning and he was there and then i'd gone to residency training in the afternoon and they were having a scrimmage and he wasn't playing but he was their water boy and just bringing water to them and i mean it just kind of shows the kind of guy that he was he just wanted to be there with his friends i think he's still like that today you can I'm in contact with him every now and then, and you can just feel he's this young, happy-go-lucky type of guy who, you know, he's he's very, very talented, but he's making the most of his talent, uh, which is, it's awesome to be a part of his journey. Uh, I think a lot of people in the club definitely were able to to influence him in a positive way, and uh, just even to this day, well, not nowadays, but a few months ago, I was waking up in the morning and and watching him play in the Bundesliga was was incredibly enjoyable, and I look forward to continuing to, to watch him play when we get back and going. 
And I know like hindsight's always a, a great thing, but I mean you look back at WFC two's time and obviously it lasted three seasons, you were there for two of them. The stadium project fell through in New Westminster. Do you feel if that went ahead, things would have been so much different for the team? Probably. It's it's hard to say. But you, you obviously when people are, are investing in something, invested in something, there's more likelihood that it's going to stick around. And, and we'll get to Colorado yeah. in a second, but we're building a brand new stadium. Yeah. Yeah. Whitecaps at the end of the 2016 season and like part of me was a little surprised because you'd had such a good 2016 but from knowing you I I know that you like the challenge and new opportunities and everything like that what was the main driving force behind you you going then to Cincinnati because initially you were going as an assistant coach but primarily the director of scouting and analytics was that just something that had really interested you for a while as being a job? Yeah, you know what? It's I know people use this word a lot in, in football, but it was a project because the club had shown in a very small amount of time that there was something there. They weren't getting out of this world attendances in the first year, but they they were getting impressive crowds for a first year club. Yeah. Uh, and I had a close friend uh, who was working at the club. Uh, and he kept telling me about this is the vision, this is where they wanted to go. Uh, and then eventually when I got flown out there for an interview, you could see, yes, it was a USL club, but you knew it was destined to be an MLS club. You could you could feel and see the vision uh, of the club already at that time. And I just want to be part of something. Uh, Whitecaps 2 already at the end of the second year were in a little bit of a precarious position, uh, and we weren't quite sure exactly what was going to happen. Um, so that's what led me to, to explore and, and look at different opportunities. Uh, but going to Cincinnati was an, was an awesome opportunity. It was just an opportunity just to, to run in, grab something with, with both hands uh, and just influence something every single day, irrespective of role. I, I went there, I think some people might have thought I was nuts. I was leaving an, an MLS club where I was working closely with Robo and the first team, but impacting obviously a lot of the young kids through the player pathway with Whitecaps too. But going to Cincinnati was just an opportunity that was the right opportunity for me at that time. Um, and I'm glad I took it. I certainly couldn't have predicted what would have happened yeah. wise and how things unfolded there very, very quickly, um, which probably shows a little bit of the life and times of the roller coaster of FC Cincinnati, to be brutally honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it was, a, it was a very good opportunity to go in and, and really influence something and help grow a professional football club. I was going to kind of mention that because, I mean, you were there maybe two months and then you all of a sudden became head coach that felt so out of the blue and unexpected. When you look back at then how things worked out with yourself down the line, should there maybe have been alarm bells off, you know what, coaches here, there's not a long leash for them? A hundred percent. I think it's, uh, I had a good friend of mine say, 
how you you came into the head coaching position is how you went out of the head coaching yeah. position. Uh, there was there was drama surrounding the entrance, and there was drama surrounding the exits. Um, and with a lot of very very positive memories in between, and a lot of growth that happened in between. Um, so I'm great I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, but this is a, a very very interesting business. Uh, I think when you when you're on the outside, you you think it's one thing, and and when you're really in the thick of things, you you see things in in so many different ways. Well, if we look at the the happy times, I mean, 2017, you had an amazing run to the US Open Cup semis, beating Columbus and Chicago on the way. Then 2018, you were USL Coach of the Year. You set so many records as the the club won the regular season, and I mean, it was. With what you had done, you're always you would have hoped get got the chance to then be head coach in, in MLS. When you look back at those two whirlwind years in the USL, I mean the the attendance and the successes, and did you feel the club was punching above its weight, or was it what you were expecting? Oh, it's interesting because it was so it was so bizarre. You you took a a market that. Not a lot of people know this. They had professional soccer teams in Cincinnati beforehand. Mm. Uh, and they weren't successful. And now all of a sudden, we had a club who were hot. It was the hottest ticket in town. Um, it was a, a club and a team that the entire city got behind. Uh, and we rode that roller coaster. Um, I think we knew in 2017 where the club wanted to go. The club had, had at that time, one billionaire owner. They have two billionaire owners now. So um, you, have, you have a billionaire owner that wants to, to go somewhere. There's probably a pretty good chance that it's going to go in yeah. that direction. But we had to do something to galvanize the market, but also galvanize the people that were making decisions at the MLS level. And I think the Open Cup in 2017 is really the reason why the club is in MLS today. We, we really focused, particularly the game against Columbus, it meant so much to the people in Cincinnati who there's a huge, huge rivalry between yeah. uh, Cincinnati and Columbus and somewhat similar to the Cascadia Cup in Portland, Seattle and Vancouver. But um, this was something where Cincinnati really needed us to make a statement. And we went, we won the game. Anything could have happened, but we won the game, obviously. And then we rode that uh, through that cup run. And by the end of that year, I, I think we all felt very, very confident um, that we were going to be going to Major League Soccer. The city was behind the club, I think, MLS was behind the club, uh, and the fan base certainly was. It just grew and grew and grew. You could you could feel it. You you'd win a big game, and you'd be in the city, and you could just feel the energy. You could feel the interest level of people, uh, and that I think the 2017 season is really what galvanized the city behind it. The 2018 season that was just euphoric, breaking all the rule, uh, the, the the records, obviously, um, and going on that long unbeaten streak was was a pleasure and a joy and. I think with time, uh, something we can all appreciate a little bit more. I think when you're in it, you're just so focused as a coach or a player on the next game. Um, but uh, it's something with time I'm starting to look back on even more fondly. Looking at the the move to MLS and the squad that you built, you obviously brought some guys that you're familiar with, Darren Mattix, Kakuta Mane, you brought Pami Dukai in on, on your coaching staff. Was it important for you to have some players that not only had that experience, but they, you knew you could trust? Yeah, well, you mentioned trust. I think trust is everything in this game. Yeah. You need to have trust of your players, trust of your staff, trust in management. Uh, I think it was nice to be able to bring in some familiar faces. 
And I think we we brought in several players that were on the USL team with us uh, the year before, just because they were familiar with where we were going. Um, and the, the club came into the league with one of the lowest budgets in the league. Um, so we had to be very, very realistic in terms of what we could do going into that year. Um, and, and for me personally, it was nice to have some familiar faces. It makes going to work a lot more enjoyable when you when you have people that you know, uh, but also people that you know you can you can push to try to try get better. And I think a big part of why we we started well in that year, the first so I think it was six games, we were tied for first or second in the in the Eastern Conference. Um, and a big part of that was just familiarity, familiarity in, in working with players that were in the USL team the year before. Some of the guys like like the Kendalls and the Kakudas that we'd worked with uh, before, I think that's what set us up for success initially. Uh, and then when we start losing a few games, well, I think chaos uh, chaos prevails and uh, people make precarious decisions. Um, but it was a it was a very very up and down time uh, to be part of a club and a club that came into to the league in I believe it's still the shortest time frame and. Uh, it was a sprint where everybody was trying to sprint in the same direction, but many, many people were sprinting in different directions. Yeah, I mean, looking at your record when you went, you only got 11 games. And at the time we were talking on our show, so much of the building and so much of that season, it just it mirrored the Whitecaps' first MLS season. Tater Tordeson didn't get a chance and he was let go, I think, after 12 games. You went after 11 You'd a record of two wins, two draws, seven losses. You'd been named the MLS Coach of the Week in weeks three and four. Did you have any idea that your head was on the chopping block or did it just completely come out of the blue for you? I think you could feel it. Uh, You could just feel there was... It's a a big city. It's a big market. People expect uh, expect you to win. Um, And I think uh, we were... The success that we had uh, the two years before really uh, helped get me the opportunity, but I think really hindered the way things transpired in that first season because people were so used to you winning. Uh, and then internally and externally, when you start losing a few games, people respond in different ways. Um, but you know what? I can sit here now. It's almost a year to the day that I'm glad I went for the experience. It's the, it's the first time I've been dismissed in... Yeah. 20 years of 20 years of coaching, uh, and I I've learned more from that experience than I probably learned from any experience uh, in the game. Uh, I feel like I'm a better coach, a better person because I had that experience. As disappointing and as frustrating frustrating as it was to go through it, so I've I've really used it as a growth opportunity and, and really grown from it. Uh, and, and that's why I'm I have a renewed vigor, I have a renewed passion for the game, and I'm excited to be where I am today. I always remember Robbo telling me that it's something that's guaranteed in football. You, you're going to get sacked. No manager goes through his career without getting sacked. And all the greats have, have been sacked at, at some point. The way that it played out, and it, when the GM, Jeff Berding, said it wasn't down to results. And I was on the conference call that he had immediately after you went. And I don't know how many times he said on the call the word culture, and it's like, oh, we want to change the culture. It wasn't a good culture. But he was ne- he never explained what he meant by that. Did, did you ever get an explanation as to what he meant by that? Because I, I know you maybe have to watch what you say, but I, I can say, to me, it felt like you were thrown under the bus without ever having an explanation of why he said the culture wasn't good there. Uh, 
answer for it. Um, I, I, you know what? Things happen in life, and when they happen, sometimes you you just have to move on. And I think that's one of the things that I've I've realized from this experience. Like I mentioned, it Robo is right. Uh, you you will get fired at some stage in this business, right or wrong, uh, and you just have to accept it, learn, uh, and move on. And uh, all you can do is go uh, go be the best you can be uh, in another environment. Um, and to be quite frank, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, I've spoken to lots and lots of different coaches and managers around the world that have been through it, and certainly doesn't ever feel good. Um, but uh, you hate to say this saying, and I actually hate the saying, but it is what it is. And you go through it, you live, you learn, and uh, you have to you have to move forward. But I think the best way to to move forward is to reflect and learn. Um, and the next, I think it was five months. Uh, of our lives, we went back to our house in Deep Cove in North End and mm. spent the summer there, which was which was awesome, and went for walks and hikes and did Quarry Rock and uh, just really lived and learned as much as possible in a short amount of time. And so grateful that I wasn't out of the game for too long because I have lots of friends that have either been fired or dismissed, and they're out of the game here a year, year and a half, two years later. Um, so it's it's not it's not pleasurable being out of the game because we all live to be on the pitch, uh, yeah. and that's. That's what even makes it more challenging going through this now because we went through that last summer and now we're going through a different type of challenge yeah. now with the pandemic. Um, so I, either way, no matter what happens in life, I'm always itching to get back on the pitch. Uh, I was itching then and I'm itching right now. Well, I, th- I think it's also fair to say as well that if you look at what's happened at Cincinnati since you left, there still hasn't been a settling down of the situation there and they're, they're going through head coaches faster than they're going through seasons right now in Ohio. But that seems a, a good point to bring this first part of the interview to a close. And we'll be back with Alan chatting about his move to Colorado Springs switchbacks and the squad that he's built there and a lot more besides. And we'll be back with that right after this. Hi, I'm Daniel Henry and you are listening to AFTN. back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio. That was the wonderful sound of the Laz, a Liverpool band that came to prominence in the late 80s and early 90s. A classic UK indie song, There She Goes, from their self-titled debut album and only studio album, The Laz. That was a band whose album I kind of dug out a, a couple of weeks ago during the lockdown, just revisiting some of my old favourites and Still such a wonderful album. 
albeit one with which the, the band were never really happy with the, the production with, which seems to be a, a running theme in some of the, the songs that I'm bringing you in recent episodes of the show. That song has seen a number of re-releases over the years. A song also very popular at weddings, with happy couples wanting to dig it out for its upbeat, jaunty sound. Perhaps not really knowing the real meaning behind the lyrics. And that was also our second song from this week's Three of a Kind. So song number one was Beetle Bum by Blur. Song number two, There She Goes by The Laz. Both songs from self-titled albums by the artists. Could that be the link, perhaps? Did you think it was maybe insects from the first song, Beetle Bum? Well, it's definitely not that. Have you worked the link out yet? If you have, what could the third song possibly be? We'll find out in part five. For now, though, we're going to bring you the second half of our chat with Alan Koch that we had this week. And our chat so far has pretty much looked at his past, his time up at SFU, his move to the Whitecaps with WFC2, and his move to Cincinnati with FC Cincinnati, the highs and the lows, the USL days, the MLS days. Alan decided to take some time away from the game after being sacked by FC Cincinnati pretty much a, a year ago now, and he had a few offers in the coming months after that time, but decided to wait for the right one, and he decided that Colorado Springs Switchbacks was that job, the job that would tempt him back into football management, and we're going to look at the, the work that he's got ahead of him down in Colorado Springs right now. The team that he's building, which includes quite a strong Canadian contingent. Anyone that followed WFC2 will know them well. They, they were the team that the Whitecaps got their first playoff win against in the in the USL playoffs. You, you took a couple of months off and I saw your name linked with a, a couple of positions, including even down in South Africa. Why Why did you wait? so long to get back in the game and what was it about this switchbacks job that appealed to you interesting honestly that was one of the the most unique experiences of my life because i had never been in that position before where i was between jobs and uh different jobs were being presented uh, in different parts of the world to be honest there were some in eastern europe which uh, would have been an entry point into europe Mm. uh, to to go there and do well for a year or two and then hopefully progress to one of the bigger leagues uh, in Europe, but none of those opportunities were the right ones. I had some opportunities to go back to South Africa, but to be quite honest, they weren't the right ones either. And then when this job presented itself, you could see similar, and this probably says a little bit about myself, but you could see it was a project. Um, yeah. The team was really, really struggling. Uh, they had five-day coach. They were bottom or second bottom at the time uh, in the league. Um, so really needed to make some changes from a team perspective, philosophy perspective, how things were going. Um, but most importantly, they were showing growth from a club perspective. They'd invested, uh, and the stadium is being built right now to build a stadium downtown here in Colorado Springs that's going to be ready next, next March. Uh, and it was a plan. Uh, and being in a smaller market, uh, it's a smaller budgeted club, uh, which is not a challenge for me to be brutally honest. Um, but being in a place where there was a vision was, was very, very important. And you can see the vision because we still are able to, even during this pandemic, we drive past the stadium and go see the progress. And there's progress happening every single day on, on that construction site. And hopefully uh, the stadium will be ready on time uh, to start 
start next year. So it's going to be fun. It's it's been fun so far. I've enjoyed being here. I was able to assess the group that we had at the end of last year and see who we wanted to keep, who fit the way we want to play in the culture of our group. There were a few players that we kept. Uh, they've been fantastic. And then we spent a lot of time just recruiting, uh, finding the right players to come in within the budget that we have. I think we did a decent job of that. And then it was fun in preseason, just working with the lads that we have to to figure out how we want to play and put all these new pieces together because it, take, it takes time. Uh, and we were rewarded for the hard work by winning the first game on the road, yeah. but then we had momentum taken away from us. So it's going to be interesting when we get back. We're going to have to push and really get these guys galvanized again because this group doesn't have a long history together. It's a new group, new coaching staff, new players. I thought we had a good preseason, but now we're almost starting at uh, ground zero again. Well, if we talk about the coaching staff, you've got a, a fellow South African and as your assistant in, in Kyle Tim. But what was it about him that you felt was he was the ideal person for your right-hand man? Um, it's interesting. So I'd known Kyle for some time. Uh, bizarrely, we didn't know each other in South Africa. And bizarrely, we were born in the same uh, hospital in Durban. So um, I, always, I always say he was born before me, but he certainly wasn't because he's a lot younger than I am. But we're both born in the same uh, same hospital, which is a pretty unique fact. Kyle is a younger coach who has so many of the good things that you cannot teach. Um, he's passionate. He's incredibly hardworking. He's willing to learn. Uh, he'll challenge you in the right environment. Uh, and I really got to know him uh, when I was coaching first in Vancouver and then in Cincinnati. He was a guy who would be reaching out, just wanting to grow and exchange ideas and chat. Uh, he even came and visited us. One of the seasons with Cincinnati, we were in Charleston for preseason. He came and watched, mm. uh, watched us train and a, a guy who, uh, every time we've had chats, they've been enjoyable chats, they've been constructive football chats. Uh, he'd be picking my brain, I'd be picking his brain. Um, and then when I got presented with this opportunity, obviously then you, you start trying to figure out who who can you get to come join you. Uh, and he was a good guy. He, he's had success in the college game uh, down in the States, and he wanted to make the jump to the professional game. Um, so uh, I'm excited to have him with me, and it's also a good opportunity for him to, to showcase himself too. If we look at some of the squad that you've built, well, I'll come to the Canadian content in a in a minute, but you talked earlier about at WFC2, there was the need of getting the right experience in there to, to help the young guys come along. And I mean, a couple of names jump out to me when I look at the roster. The first one being Christian Valeski. Um, and I tweeted this when you mentioned about the signing. He's 27 now, and he's a guy that I've kind of I've known the name. I've kind of seen what he's done in USL the last couple of seasons. He won a championship with Rochester Rhinos in 2015. You don't want to compare too much, but he strikes me as a kind of Kyle Gregg type of guy, a guy that's been around the league, not just because yeah, he's a big. I, I, I knew where you were going with yeah. that one. I, could, I started to figure it out. Not just a big forward, but he's got that kind of calming influence, I think, that will really help the young guys. And, of course, he scored a goal in the in the home opener as well. And he's a guy, he scored goals everywhere he went, maybe didn't have a great season last year with Pittsburgh, but he does seem a, the ideal kind of guy to have on your team. 100%. And, you know, it's funny, I, I have a lot of respect for Kyle. Uh, Kyle Gregg, and he did wonders for us and got rewarded with an MLS contract in Vancouver. Um and Christian's very, very similar. Very, very similar type of player, similar type of mentality too. Uh, he's a guy that wants to push to be the best that he can be, but he also wants to make the players around him better too. And um, He's probably in the middle of his career, but he still wants to get better. 
which is huge. I, I want all of our players to get better. Uh, I've, I've said this to our players and I've said this in a few conversations with people is we're a platform club. Uh, this shouldn't be your be-all and end-all. Uh, it's an amazing club. We're in a beautiful city. We're building a beautiful stadium. But every player should want to come here to get better. Uh, and that's irrespective of your age and where you are along the journey. Uh, if you can come here and be better and use this to progress to a bigger and better place, uh, I think that's something we can all take a lot of satisfaction from. Uh, and he's one of those players. So he he played the first our first game on the road and, and scored in the first game. And those are the expectations I have of him, but I know those are the same expectations he has of himself too. And an, another face that Whitecaps fans would be familiar with is Andre Lewis, who I I feel just didn't really live up to his potential here. He looked so exciting, and then for whatever reason, he just didn't make that breakthrough. He's still young. I mean, you, you must obviously have seen something in him during your time here to, to bring him back. Yeah, you, you know what's funny is, I know I mentioned timing earlier. I almost feel, uh, I think Andre was a very good acquisition by by the Whitecaps at the time, but I almost feel like it, it arrived too early for him too early for him as a player and as a person. I think he was still very, very young at the time. Uh, I think, unfortunately, he spent a lot of the time with the Whitecaps where he was injured. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't really able to to reach uh, the best of his abilities there. But he's a player who I definitely don't think he's peaked yet. He plays in a slightly different position now. I think he's become more of a central midfielder where oh. he's more of an attack, attacking player, more of a winger. Now he's more of a link player. Uh, and I think he's still he's learnt the rule, but I think he still has work to do. Uh, but he's a he's a young, infectious player. He's a player that's a pleasure to work with because he's emotional and he's passionate. Um, but when you push him, you can see uh, the fire in his eyes. You can see he wants to get better, uh, and hopefully we can push him to to improve while he's with us. And you've got three Canadians on the team: Sean Melvin, who people will know from his time at the Whitecap. Aidan Daniels, who came through Toronto's system, made one MLS appearance for Toronto and has been capped at youth level with Canada. And Mamadi Kamara, who's uh, an SFU alumni, you had him at training a little bit at WFC too, I I know that, and then he ended up getting drafted by San Jose, it didn't kind of work out there. He kind of floated around for a bit and folk were kind of wondering where his career was going to take him next because I was watching him playing VMSL and... He was clearly far too good for that. The importance of having these Canadian guys, I mean, just talk a little bit about each of those. Yeah, all three of them are different. Like Mamadi's a player who, obviously with my SFU connections, and every time I'm back in Vancouver, I've always gone to go watch SFU either play or train, depending on the time of year. And Mamadi's a player, he's a professional footballer. Uh, I think everybody who watches him play, you can see it. So I was very, very surprised that he didn't get an opportunity to sign a contract uh, last year. Uh, I had the confidence already in his our first game this year. I put him on for the last few minutes just to go out and finish a job for us. Um, so he's he's made his professional debut already. Um, he's still learning the professional game because it is a big step. No matter where you play your university soccer, to go to the professional level is a step up. Uh, I feel like he obviously wasn't given the opportunity last year, but I'm excited to have him here. He's a highly intelligent player. We We do a lot of tactical assignments now during COVID-19 with our players and to be frank I'm, I'm not surprised a lot of the time the, the work that he's turning in is, is some of the deepest and most analytical work that we're getting back um, so he, he's a player who's, who's got the athletic ability but he also has the, the football savviness uh, and hopefully he can have a long career uh, because it's not, it's not 
easy to sign your first professional contract, but it's more difficult to sign your second. Um, so we'll see how things uh, go for him when he gets back up and running. Sean, uh, I had some interaction with in Vancouver. Uh, he obviously came through the residency program. He went down and played in the States. Uh, we we brought him back. Uh, obviously, I don't know if it was Robbo or, or who was the manager at the time. might have been Mark that signed him uh, to an MLS deal. So they mm. obviously as a club, they saw, saw value in him. Um, obviously, didn't get an opportunity to play. It, it's tough as a young goalkeeper to get the chance to play. And we brought him here now, and he started the first game. He played well. He made two incredible saves to help us get the three points. And um, generally speaking, keepers can play longer. So he's still a young, a young player. Uh, and I, I think he has a big future ahead of him. So exciting to push him. And then Aiden Daniels is one of our youngest players, a young kid who came through the TFC Academy uh, and really was a lot of people in Toronto thought big things of him. Um, but it's difficult as a, a young Canadian hen, essentially, to break into the starting eleven for a club that spends a lot of money like Toronto FC. Yeah. Not an easy task. Um, so it was almost like he, I don't want to say he was doomed to fail right from the start, but it certainly wasn't going to be easy to, to push Pozuelo out or, or any of their more experienced older players. Um, so they loaned him out. Uh, he went to Ottawa. He didn't play as much as he would have liked there. Uh, but I... I watched a lot of those games um, where he played for Ottawa, and when he did play, he showed some amazing signs. Uh, and he's come in, and he's got a he's got a certain amount of flair to him, a little bit of a swagger. Uh, and he's a player that I think when he's confident, he can do very very special things. So all three all three of the Canadian guys definitely have upside. Uh, I'm excited we we got them here. I think the Canadian connection obviously helped uh, lure them here. Um, I've always loved working with Canadian players, whether it was in whether I was living in Canada or being down in the states. I think as a Canadian. I'll always try to give Canadian players a chance. Uh, and these three guys have come in, and so far they've done very, very well. And next season, the USL's changing the rules for Canadians and not no longer going to be classed as domestic. Do you think that might impact your chance to get Canadians there? Or do you think CPL might become the, the league of choice for them? You know, it's, I've been through a lot of conversations. I had, even in my, my phase where I, I was between, between jobs and back in Vancouver, I had CPL teams talking to me then. Mm. Uh, not about... Coming in directly to work for them at that time, but the possibility in the future, and I have a lot of respect, and I'm very excited to see where the CPO goes. But the USL is definitely a place for players to develop and kick on and, and showcase themselves. It's a more established league today, um, and I think there will always be Canadians that will want to come down and, and try show what they can do in the USL, but also use it as a stepping stone uh, to get into MLS. But it is going to be more challenging now. I, if I look at our team and I, I feel like a rain man here sitting at our home because I've got like three or four different <laughs> whiteboards all over the place. I had to bring them home while we're here in self-isolation. But the the Canadians now on our team and on every team will compete for international spots. Um, but what I do think is the cream will rise to the top. Uh, and if you're a Canadian, that's good enough. It doesn't matter where you come from, what nationality. If you're good enough, you're going to make it. Um, so I think it could be the negative side would be maybe there's less opportunities. The positive side is the good ones are going to get better. So, I mean, making the move to, to Colorado Springs, it's probably not a place that many people know too much about. So I had a little look about it before I, I gave you a call and I was quite surprised. I did not realise it was so big. It's nearly half a million people and it's a, a mile above sea level. But the stadium that, that you currently play at, Widener Stadium, it's, it's 5,000 capacity 6,500 feet above sea level, and according to Wikipedia, it's the highest elevation of any 
professional soccer team in the American football pyramid. I mean, what's it like playing and training and everything at that altitude? <laughs> you know what? You feel short of breath a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I still, I, I still to this day, it's my age, my fitness levels, or the altitude. We'll say it's the altitude. But we uh, we live on the, the top floor of a three-story building, and uh, when we walk up the stairs, you still feel you feel it every now and then. And uh, it's something that we actually introduced to our players at the start of the season. Within our system of play, we want to use the altitude as a competitive advantage um, because it's not an easy place to come play. I, I remember coming here or going to Denver for, for games. Uh, it was very, very difficult as the way team. Uh, just players come here to, to breathe. It's not that easy. The legs start to give way. Um, and I think it's something we can definitely use as, as the home team. But living in Colorado is... I've lived in a few states in the U.S., and it's the one that's probably the most similar uh, to being back in Canada. And it's uh, just being right next to the Rocky Mountains. Uh, here, obviously, we have beautiful scenery. There's amazing hikes. Uh, it's a nice-sized uh, city. Everything you need is, is here. But we're also an hour. It's, even less, it's less than an hour to the south side of Denver, away from getting into a big city. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's a nice... It's almost, if I was compared in, in B.C., it's almost like living in, in the Fraser Valley in, in some respects mm. um, because you're, you're out there, you live in your own community, uh, but if you need to get to downtown Vancouver, you can you can drive in and uh, go see shows or, or whatever it is you'd like to go do. And you've mentioned the, the new stadium a couple of times. I had a look at some photos from it and it looks a fantastic stadium. It's It looks very much like a kind of lower league English stadium. The fans are close to the pitch, and it, it looks really enclosed, and it looks like it's going to be a fantastic thing when it's finished. You know, it's funny you mentioned lower league English uh, stadiums, because I've, I've been doing a lot of just professional development work now during this pandemic, and I've, I've focused on a few different teams uh, around the world, but I have watched a few games, League One-type games in, in the UK, mm. uh, and it's, it's very similar to some of those stadiums, uh, just in shape. An appearance, I think, an atmosphere. Obviously, it's going to be new. It'll it'll have some of the new bells and whistles. It won't have all of them, um, but it's going to be a beautiful, small little compact 8,000-seater stadium um, with the view is out of this world. The stadium literally downtown is literally on the side of the mountain. Um, so I'm pretty certain it's going to be one of the most beautiful stadiums uh, in North America. Um, and I know everybody in the community is incredibly excited for us to get to go work there. If we're talking about new stadiums, I have to ask you about SFU's new stadium finally getting built. I know I spoke to you when you were there and you were looking at what to do to try and maybe get the team to play at Swan Guard or just something. I mean, what do you think that's going to mean to the programme actually having a proper stadium? Yeah, it'll be awesome. Like, I think any time. Uh, you know what, it's the, the university game or college game is very similar to the professional game. Everybody wants their own stadium. Uh, it, it gives you your your own added identity, uh, particularly for a university team to be able to play on campus in a beautiful stadium like SFU will have is, is going to be awesome. It's going to add an extra value to, to the experience for all of the student-athletes. So I was there. I came back to Vancouver last November, I believe it was. I was able to go watch an SFU game. Uh, there There was a lot of construction happening at that time, and I'm certain by the time I get back next, the stadium will be up and running and uh, looking forward to going and watching a game on the hill. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. It should be really good. So we've looked back on your career, and it's a lengthy coaching career. When you look at 
if we, I know you did stuff before SFU, but if I just look at your time from SFU till now, how do you feel you've changed as a head coach? I'm completely different. It's, uh, I'd even say between 2014, my last, my last year at SFU and now, I've evolved. I mean, I think in, uh, for the most, most part, a, a big positive manner. Uh, I just, I've been fortunate that I've been exposed to, to different things. Uh, but I've also exposed myself to different things too and, and had to learn and, and grow from those experiences. When you, if you look at in 2014, which is six years ago, I was coaching at SFU and we were lucky if we were getting 500 fans. Uh, and in the last six years, I've, I, I coached against Atlanta United at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in front of 70,000 fans. Uh, and we, we scored right at the end to tie it up. Um, so, you, you have to grow from those experiences because you you learn to cope and deal with different situations. And obviously there's always pressure because the coach should always put pressure on themselves, uh, but there's also external pressure too. And I, I would feel that in Vancouver where there was pressure to develop players, um, which is great, and there should have been, uh, but I also put pressure on myself to win there too. Uh, and then you go to Cincinnati where there's, mass pressure on, on the manager. Mm. Uh, everybody expects you to win every single game and you can feel it in that stadium. Uh, that stadium is rocking. When you, when you win, people are flying high in the crowd. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty euphoric feeling because the stadium is a big bowl and you can feel uh, the energy. Uh, but on the flip side, you can also feel people are suffering uh, when things are not going well. Uh, so you learn to, to manage the roller coaster manage the ups, manage the downs. I've always tried to remain even keel throughout the process, uh, sometimes better uh, than others. Uh, but I feel like I've grown substantially. Uh, I think my own personal methodology and, and how I approach the game uh, has definitely changed. You, you coach in different leagues, and I think people around the world don't really see it as much. But in North America, the different leagues have different rules. Like, I remember how we were, we were running things in the NCAA with SFU. I, I definitely managed games in a different way because I had different substitution rules. And yeah. then we went to the Whitecaps 2 in the USL, and the USL had five substitutions at the time. So you would manage things there in a very different way. You, you'd have chats with Robo, and Robo would say, one or two players need to play a certain minutes, but then the rest was completely at my discretion. So I'd have to manage games with predetermined substitutions, and then others that you could manage when you needed to make those adjustments. Um, and then, thankfully, which I prefer on the traditionalist, uh, the leagues have evolved and USL and MLS have FIFA substitution rules, and then you manage those games in different ways. Um, but you have to grow from those experiences. If, if you don't, the game is going to fly past you. People will fly past you. It, it's so competitive. There are new coaches coming on the scene all the time, um, and uh, you, you have to evolve otherwise. You're not even going to give yourself a chance to survive in this game. And I mean, you've talked about timing being important in in the game, and I mean, it certainly is. You you took the Colorado Spring Switchbacks job, then a couple of weeks later, Michael Silberbauer gets sacked by Pacific FC, and to me, that would have felt like a fantastic fit for you. But looking to the future, do you see the CPL as being a place that you might want to go and manage, or do you still harbour getting back into MLS? Oh, interesting question. Um, you know what? I'm open to the journey. I, I truly am. I, I don't get fixated on one league. Uh, I feel privileged to have been an MLS head coach. 
Uh, not many people can say that. I wasn't there for very long, um, but I was able to get there. Thank goodness. I wouldn't mind going back, but I'm equally satisfied being a USL head coach. Uh, for me, it's not about which league or what level of the permit. It's about the project. It's about the right job. Uh, and I'd love to coach in the CPL um, at the right time, in the right place, with the right ownership and management group, um, provided we're all working in the same direction. Yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to manage in the CPL. When that day comes, sooner or later, either way, I'm fine. Uh, I do enjoy where I am right now. We definitely have a lot of work still to do here. Uh, I think we can be successful. I think a lot of people will be surprised. A lot of people in the coaching fraternity that know some of the challenges uh, that this club has had um, will be surprised to hear me say that. But I really do believe we can maximize what we have with the playing group. Uh, I'm impressed where ownership want to take us. Um, and uh, hopefully we can achieve our goals here. But, yeah, I, I'm open. I, I'm definitely open to CPL. I'm open to MLS. Uh, I'm open. I've had offers to go back to South Africa where my family, we left there a long time ago and we're all uh, proud of our roots, but also very, very proud Canadians. Um, and I'm also open to going to other places um, because I think that's the beauty of our our sport. Uh, our sport is truly global. Uh, yeah. And I, I said this on a interview I did a few weeks ago. I think it was a question by somebody who was living in Europe and was asking, how do I get over to, they said America. Uh, and I said, well, I don't know why you'd want to go over to America. You should be open. You should be great. If something presents itself in the United States or Canada, great, go for it. But if something presents itself somewhere else, why not go that way too? Um, obviously, people have preferred places that they would like to live or maybe they have family reasons. Uh, but this game is is beautiful because it's played everywhere. Uh, and I've been very, very fortunate to, to get to experience the game as a player, as a coach in different places. And uh, I'd be quite open to going to other places too. And you've talked about it being a, a project with the switchbacks. The, the team hasn't made the playoffs in the last three seasons. You've obviously got off to a, a good start. It's just one game, which probably makes it more more frustrating that you win that. It's like the Whitecaps. They were in, they'd scored one in LA, and then the season gets cancelled. When things do get back, however they come back, I mean, what are you expecting from the team this season? Are are they playoff contenders? It's interesting, though. You know, you, you mentioned that first game, and we win the game, and, and some some people say, and, and they are correct, it's like, oh, you've lost a little bit of momentum by, mm. by, by by not playing any further beyond the first game. But the benefit for us and benefit for the Whitecaps winning that last game is we all feel a lot better about ourselves right now because we won that last game. Uh, so it, it puts staff and players and, and supporters in a more of a positive light because you've had that positive experience. So hopefully when we get back, uh, we can build uh, on that positive experience. I've been asked a lot, actually, our president of our club asked, uh, even in a team meeting, like, let's put goals uh, on certain things. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in this game. Yes, uh, we'll have goals, and I certainly wouldn't publicize them. Yeah. But my biggest, my biggest goal in this game is to win the next game. It, it really is. That's my absolute focus, is do everything you can to prepare yourself, coaching staff, players, entire club, for the next game. I think any time you look too far beyond that, you're disrespecting your opponent first off, but you're really losing sight of the work that you have to do. Uh, this is a this is a business where the only thing that matters is the next three points um, because it's the only thing you really can control is you've got to prepare 
reflect on where you're at, but start to prepare for that game and then go give it your best shot. And then if you win, enjoy it for five minutes. Uh, uh, if you, you don't win, or you won't enjoy it at all, and then start preparing for the next challenge. And hopefully by the end of it, uh, you've had a positive season. And I think collectively, uh, I've said this now publicly, is I've come here to, to work with this club as a project. I'm excited about where it's going, uh, but definitely take the team up the table, um, which is a bit of a no-brainer because the team finished last last yeah. year. Uh, and I do feel confident we'll go up the table. How far, that's going to depend on, on how we all come together. Well, good luck for this season. Wish you well. Hopefully we'll see you back in the pitch sooner rather than later, however the season is going to look. And we call this land South Africa The Cape of Hope to the Northern Star From the hope and peace will never be Always good to catch up with Alan, really look forward to maybe taking a game in with him up on the mountain if SFU do get back into action at some point this year. Hard to perhaps see that happening right now because I guess if the students aren't going to be back in college then they're not going to be students playing college sports either so it's going to be interesting to see what the likes of the NCAA and U Sports do with their season. Will there be a season? As for the USL, as I mentioned at the start of bringing you this interview with Alan, Jake Edwards, the USL president, has talked about hopefully getting the games back up and running from July. So good luck to Alan down there in Colorado. We'll certainly be following his time there. Could he return to Canada and be a head coach in the CPL one day? Well, I certainly wouldn't rule that out, especially if we do get a team out in the Fraser Valley. He would seem an ideal fit for, for that situation like that. So I hope you enjoyed that chat. Next week's feature interview is going to be with another former Whitecap, a player this time from the MLS era and a fan favourite as well, Andy O'Brien. But that comes up in next week's show. We will be back with the final part of this week's show, looking at the Whitecaps news of the week, and I think we all know what that's going to be. And we'll be back with that and our final Three of a Kind song after this. Hello, it's Kai Kumar, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. like sun lays me down with my mind she runs throughout the night no need to fight never a frown with golden brown every time just like the last on her ship tied to the mast two distant lands takes both my hands never a frown Golden Brown. Welcome back to the final part of tonight's AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. The final part also means the final song from our Three of a Kind competition this week. Did you work out what the link was? The last song was a classic from 1981, The Stranglers, Golden Brown. 
probably their best known single from their long career. First featured on their 1981 album La Folie. And the keyboard sound at the, the start of that it is just such an iconic sound. And when you, you think about the Stranglers, you think of that keyboard. And they were very unusual for a punk band in having that kind of different distinctive sound. And that was something that lead singer Hugh Cornwell talked about in an interview a couple of times. But the one that always sticks in my mind is he talks about how that keyboard sound basically differentiated the Stranglers from other punk bands at the time and has probably given them a, a lot of longevity as well. The bulk of that song was written by keyboard player Dave Greenfield, who sadly passed away this week, aged 71, complications from COVID-19. And we bring you that song and this week's Three of a Kind section as tribute to Dave Greenfield. Did you work out what the link was? We had Beetle Bum by Blur. That was a song by Damon Albarn about his time spent with former girlfriend Justine Fleischman, who was the lead singer of Elastica, and the drug issues that they had with heroin during that time. The second song that kicked off part four was The Laz, There She Goes, a song used by many happy couples at their weddings. But it's actually about lead singer Lee Maver's heroin addiction. I think you're starting to get the link now, because yes, that song Golden Brown by The Stranglers was also in particular about Dave Greenfield's struggle with the drug heroin. Not a happy topic, I know, but we really wanted to kind of feature that song from Dave Greenfield this week on the show. So, I mean, it just seemed apt to to have that as the, as the topic. And RIP Dave, it's been a bad week for losing some greats of the musical industry. Little Richard, of course, passed away aged 87. The music world also lost Florian Schneider this week one of the founding members of cult and influential German electronic band Kraftwerk. Rest in peace, one and all. Keeping the musical theme going now, it's Wavelength time. For those that are unaware, Wavelength is the section of the show where we play a football-related song. And this week we're going back to 1996, and a band that we featured several times on the show before, Halftime Oranges, This is a song from their debut album, Clive Baker Set Fire To Me, and continuing our songs this month about football teams, this is The Only Halifax Supporter. Yeah. 
Halftime Orange is there with the only Halifax supporter. From their 1996 album, Clive Baker, Set Fire to Me. Certainly a very strange occurrence in the UK and actually throughout Europe. There's a number of people there that just adopt a a team from nowhere near to them. I guess it's a bit like myself with Slutsk and Vikinger Gotenau in the Faroes Premier League. And a number of these people travel many, many miles to watch their teams. We, we had a guy at East Fife that travelled up regularly from Luton in England, flew up for home matches, flew up for away matches, was even featured on a, a show once on Sky TV about his antics. I remember there's a group of fans as well that used to travel up from Leeds to watch East Fife. Even further afield, there was a group of Norwegian fans that used to come over to watch Stenhouse Muir and they used to come over with their cowbells and their Viking horns and just create a completely different atmosphere. Always a lot of fun. Now, one of the songs that I was going to feature in the Three of a Kind section for this was going to be Perfect Day by Lou Reed, which many people have always said is about his heroin addiction. Lou Reed himself denied that that's what the song was about. And with the weather right now, we've had quite a few perfect days here in Vancouver. But it wasn't a perfect day on Wednesday for a couple of Whitecaps players. And we're going to cover that now in this week's Whitecaps News of the Week. Yes, I'm talking about Jordi Reyna and Yasser Kamiri, two Whitecaps players found to have broken the club's strict rules around the lockdown, taken part, albeit briefly, in an impromptu game of football at Andy Livingston Park. Now we'll have Zach back on the show in a couple of minutes just to to talk about that situation and some other news coming out from the Whitecaps and CPL this week. But I want to bring you a little bit of audio first. Whitecaps Sporting Director Axel Schuster had an impromptu Zoom conference call late on Wednesday afternoon after the news had come out that Jordi Reyna had been fined and quarantined for 14 days for breaking the lockdown restrictions and social distancing practices. Now, at the time of doing the press conference, Jordi Reyna was the only Whitecaps player that had been implicated in this. Video had been shown the night before on Global News... In a section that they were doing on people basically going out and breaking the the social distancing laws and they had a little bit of footage, very brief footage, of some people playing football in Andy Livingston Park. Now unfortunately for the Whitecaps, one of those people that was taking part in that game was Jordi Reyna. Now Reyna only apparently took part in the game for five minutes, but of course it only takes a few seconds to be captured on film for you to be embroiled in a bit of a scandal, and that's how Reyna found himself this week. But then it also came out that in the video was Jasser Kamiri. Both players now find themselves locked down in quarantine for 14 days. 
both have also been fined by the club. So Axel talked to a couple of media about that, how they got to know about it, and a, a few other things as well. So let, let's just bring you what Axel had to say on that, and then we'll chat to Zach a little bit more about it. I think a lot of people were probably shocked when they when they saw him participating in in a in a little mini soccer game, no social distancing. Axel, obviously, I, I don't think you'd condone the behavior when we're supposed to be respecting social distancing and, and MLS policy. I don't believe players are supposed to be on the pitch. So I'm wondering, first off, your thoughts on his actions, and will we see a suspension? Uh, first and foremost, I, I have to say that we, of course first reach out to to Jordi and and asking him about the whole issue and and he he told us that he didn't went out for a taking part in a soccer kick he went out for his personal workout and then there was this group of guys he know and they said hey come over and they kicked one ball to him and then they asked him to take part and he made a mistake. No question. He was very open about the whole issue and he was very, he was apologized immediately. He knew that he did something wrong and, and we didn't mention to him at that point that there was a videotape or that it was already somewhere public. We reached out to him very early this morning and, and asked him what he did yesterday. And uh, of course, it's, it's unacceptable and um, he's a public person. We have to be role models in this time. So he made a lot of mistakes there, and and by the way, and and, and first and foremost, he, he he apologized and knew that immediately and was was very open and honest to us. If if I look at the at the rules in our state, so far as I know, if their a, a park guard would come and see them play, he would tell the group that they have to distance, take the distance again, and to respect that rule and. I, maybe he will. I think he will. He will immediately quit and 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 stop this game. But there is not a a real fine right now in in our state for doing such things in in an open park. So we decided first that he has to self quarantine, and that is something he has to do because maybe he got infected and he is he is part of our group and we are in some processes and we don't want that he is a danger for somebody else. The second thing is, uh, in the same time, he cannot take part in any form of, of training that maybe comes up within the next 14 days. Uh, we don't know about the next phases. And the third thing, he was fined. So he got a fine um, and, and he, would, he, has, he has to, to, to accept it or he already accepted and he has to pay this fine. And, and, and that for us was... Uh, the the right thing to do at this point and we didn't saw a reason to to do more than that if you were asking for more than that axel i was wondering how did the club find out about this and when did the club find out about this the club found out about this uh late yesterday evening because somebody in our club uh forwarded us a, a a video he made with his mobile phone of the report, and uh, we we were we start writing about that issue in our group. I think at 11 uh, p.m. yesterday, and we went on at 6:30 this morning, and we reached out to Jordi 
around uh, 7.30, I think. And so that, that was the procedure. And then of, we, we immediately said, Jody, that we cannot accept this behavior and we have to fine him and we have to, to put some measures in place. But as you know, we, we have to follow the procedure and the protocol. So uh, he is an employee of MLS. So we reached out to, to MLS that they are aware of that and, and discuss with them the issue as well. So, so, um, so it took a little bit of time until we, we had everything in place and we were ready to, to announce it. With Jordi being fined and knowing his actions, are you satisfied with, with that now, or are you expecting the MLS to bring down further discipline? <laughs> you, can, you can be sure that, that every step was uh, discussed and, uh, with MLS and uh, that MLS uh, was aware of, of all the steps we did. So I don't think that, that there will be some more steps right now. I don't expect any more of that. And once again, yes, I, I'm really not satisfied about that because I, I think our guys did a great job in the last month, months, weeks, and, 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 and we have to be a role model. And, and especially now uh, on that pathway back onto the pitch, I address to our players, we should we shouldn't be role models for all kids outside that that what we do is not going back to kick the ball and we are not going back to play games and have having contact. We, we are only doing individual workouts and we are doing also this workouts way restricted and with protocols and checklists and, 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 and so on. So we have to be the, the role model. We have to be top of the top to, to address the right message to, to all the kids outside. As I said before, they, the, the, this, the, the, the parks and 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 all this this uh, this areas at the waterfront are are packed of people. So it's it's even more important now, where everybody gets a feeling now nah, things are reopening a little bit, and you are looking to to the right and to the left to Europe and US, and and everybody maybe gets a little bit more lazy. It's even more important that we step up and say hey, look how we are doing the things. And so it's, it's, it's really, it was bad in, for a lot of reasons what he did. But at the end, he is a human being. He, he, he didn't went out and said, I give a shit on that and I, I, I disrespect all the rules. So he was there. There was a group of guys. I, I'm also a human being and I try to, 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 to um, always see also this part because I'm in this business for 20 years and I saw, saw so many young boys. They are all soccer players. They are all a little bit more kids than, than maybe somebody else in their age because they, they are playing this game. They are, that's their character. They are specialists uh, on the pitch. And, and we have also to, to help those. And I don't think it's the right thing now in the first step to, to, to kill somebody, to, to, to 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 do more than that because uh, he was in the moment we called him he was he was lay, lying on the ground and and saying hey sorry I made everything wrong it, it's absolutely my fault and I and he, he didn't even know that it becomes such a story so so what should he do with it so the first thing is that that I think we we were active proactive and and immediately said to him it doesn't matter. Uh, if you apologize, it doesn't matter if somebody else noticed it. We will find you, and we will, we will, we have to, 
we have to state an example. You did it at the wrong time because uh, maybe it used now an example that everybody is even more aware of that. And, and so you are, you are the first one who made a mistake. And I would be very happy if nobody made a mistake. But the first one is, is, of course, an example for everybody else not to do it in the same way. And that was also the reason why we said we have to make it publicly. We want to go out with that. And, and, and um, I think the, the, the um, cameraman yesterday, he didn't notice Jordi because it was not a story. So we said, but for us, it is a story because on our pathway, on our way back to, to training on to games, we have to show everybody that we respect the rules. And if you do something wrong, you, you have to, you have to accept the fine. But uh, I think uh, every step more, uh, it's something for somebody who now didn't got the message and still doing things wrong, but not for yet. Axel, for those of us who aren't in Vancouver, can you clarify where did the video show up of this game in the park? Uh, how did somebody from the club see it? And secondly, while I'm not sure it's that important, uh, did your player just kick the ball and spend a minute in the game? Or did he spend a long time in the game? No, so um, it wasn't global news. They more they made a, a documentary reportage about uh, that people are obviously cannot wait until rules get a little bit more liberal. So they made a general reportage about uh, people are disrespecting uh, social distancing in in Vancouver because, as I mentioned. Um, that's a point yesterday, the weather was amazing. And, uh, so I saw a lot of people going out and, and yes, not all, everybody respected the rules. So it was a general, uh, documentary about that. And he was only a five second part in that one. And, and as I said, somebody saw it yesterday on the, in the first, the first time they, they, they brought it up to the screen and, and forwarded immediately to me. The second part is. Uh, as he explained to me, and uh, that's the same story I heard now from different sides who have been involved in that or have been there, that, and it was not a player. I, so, so I heard it also from from uh, a person who spoke with the cameraman. He was he was doing his workout. Somebody kicked the ball to him and said, "Hey, come on, kick with us! You are the player from the Whitecaps, and we know you." And he knew, knew two guys of them. So he kicked it back, then they kicked it again. So he, he dribbled the first time. So he dribbled the second time. He, he was not stopped. Nobody was there. So he, he, did, he didn't knew that somebody is, is filming him. And the whole event, you, uh, or the, 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 whole, the whole game uh, that he was involved was uh, about five minutes. So then he left again and, and went home. So that was Axel Schuster there just talking about the Jordi Reyna situation. And as I mentioned, that Zoom call was before we knew about Jasser Kimiri as well. So that's why everything was just chatting about, about Reyna. But we'll, we'll bring Zach back in again just to have a little chat about this. Now, the, the story broke. Lots of folks written about it. It's been on the news. Some people are saying they don't think it's a big deal. The club obviously do think it's a big deal, otherwise they, they wouldn't have fined them for one thing. And now they're having to quarantine away from everything for the, the next two weeks. I mean, 
Schuster there was talking about wanting the club to be role models and to, to basically make an example of Reina and Kamiri, and they've certainly done that. Yeah, I think I was talking to a, a late 20-something uh, this evening, actually, about about uh, how they are going about choosing to go about you know social distancing and get large gatherings and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, and the comment I heard was, well, it, it only it's like a, a societal pressure. It only matters if if, uh, if people care. And depending yeah. on where you are, it seems like some people care and some people don't. Um, I don't know. I I fall on the side of caring and and being concerned about you know the the the, the potential health risk to especially vulnerable people, um, which I fully admit is a selfish thing due to you know having one of those people in my own home. Yeah. But uh, this is um, not the first sign of. What, what could be called poor judgment from a player like Jordy Reyna. Yeah. Uh, um, so it's not like there's no history of, uh, of making what one of my friends would call, you know, bad decisions. Um, uh, so well, Yeah, I mean, I, I tweeted at the time that after the Kamiri thing as well came out, that if you were putting money on which Whitecaps player would be the one that would do something like this, it would be Reyna or Kamiri, and then it ended up being both. Yeah, too bad, too bad you couldn't get odds of in Vegas. <laughs> it, I, I like I understand in one sense, like yeah, you're you you want to you need to stay in shape and all that kind of stuff, and you have your individualized program or whatever, uh, and so you need to go about that and, and you know as best you can in the limited you know ways or whatever things are going on. But when you get approached or whatever to go play in a game, I think you should be able to say, you know, no, I can't do that. You know, you should be able, you should know, and you should be able to, you know, have the restraint um, to say no. Like, I've hung out with lots of players and, and seen them have to say no to things that they either knew they couldn't do because of the club or they couldn't do because of, you know, their own convictions or whatever. Um, and it, sometimes you got to just make the hard decision and say, not, you know, not try and tease people or, or give in or whatever and, and walk away and say, I'm sorry, I, I just can't do that. Um, no. Yeah, but I, yeah, I also feel this is unfortunate that this is happening. Uh, I guess in one sense it's maybe fortunate that it's not like in the middle of like, oh, the seasons is starting next week or whatever. When yeah. it comes to you know Mark DeSantos, his perspective, you know, or the club's perspective as a whole. But yeah, there are people I've talked to a number of people who are just kind of like, hey, I'm social distancing because I have a loved one, but in general, I, I don't, I'm kind of. I try and I'm more staying away from the, my loved ones who, you know, who have a, have an issue and kind of going about life as much as normal as I can. But, you know, so I, I've kind of seen the spectrum of people's perspectives on this, but I personally would just stay away. Um, yeah. I mean, I know everyone, it's, it's frustrating just now. Everyone wants to get out, get some kind of life back, but if it just takes a couple of people to do something stupid and then everything starts going up again. And if you've seen the news over the weekend, yeah. it's like there's folk and beaches and parks and rivers. And it's like, come on, people. It's like, do you want to set this back? And yeah. well, the, 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 I mean, the international example is what's happened in Korea this weekend, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, tr they did so well, they reopen and then it's like they opened the bars and nightclubs and then, in a way, it's good because it will hopefully make other places realize, look, this is how quickly you can have another wave of this. Yeah. 
But oh yeah, I mean, hopefully people can learn can learn from that um, that, that situation. I know there's a number of dynamics that are going on there with that situation, but um, yeah, ho- hopefully that there are positive things that can be learned and help uh, you know other countries around the world um, in, in how they handle things. Yeah, I mean, hopefully this will be the only incident of a, a white caps player and. It's a shame, actually, for the club because they've done so well the last couple of weeks, getting some really good publicity, doing some really good things, getting really involved with the community, with the food bank and the mm-hmm. aquarium masks. And then these are the things that stick more in people's minds, sadly, than some of the good stuff that they do. It, it, it can, yeah. Yeah. Um, do we do we know? I forget. Do we know the amount of the? They, got, they also got fined, right? Yeah, they got fined by MLS, and we don't know the amount. Someone had said that they thought the maximum fine of the CBA is just something like five hundred dollars, but okay. I I don't know if the club can then do more. I mean, Schuster clearly wasn't happy with it, but I mean, he did say, "Look, he's human. Humans err. It's like he won't do this again. Hopefully, but then." You have to wonder as well, as you say, it's not the first time he's he's been involved in in something. Uh, it's like at some point the clubs, I mean, they've extended his contract, but their patience is gonna wear thin. And this was a guy as well in in Reina and actually Kamiri. They're not guaranteed their first team spot, so it's like you don't want to be doing something stupid just now that could cost you your place in the team. Yeah, I think I think with Reina. I think with both of them, it, you'd be shocked if they uh, made the this, this same error again, right? Yeah. I um, mean, to be, jo- really... to be fair, like, Jordy was really apologetic about it. He yeah. knows he's completely messed up, and hopefully we can draw a line over it, and the, the next yeah. stuff we talk about with the Whitecaps out of this is going to be more good stuff. For real. Now, something I ran on the site this week, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, Zach, or not, was I, I ran... Uh, white caps, Canadian, all Canadian MLS eleven yeah. from from the MLS years. I did, I did see it, and it was difficult because I wanted to try and keep it positionally some, some integrity really in the position thing. I thought about having Daniel Henry or Cornelius at right back instead of Fraser Aird, so that we could fit David Edgar in the team. But then I thought, no, no, we'll we'll stick with the proper position. Now, I, I don't know, did you see any glaring omissions from that that you'd put in? On on Facebook, someone suggested that Gershon Kofi should qualify because he does have Canadian citizenship. I feel that's a stretch, though. Uh, he doesn't have citizenship. I think he had PR. Was it just PR he got? Ah, someone was asking me about that, and I really wasn't sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. No, he's not a citizen. Ah. Just PR. Oh, in that case, then, yeah, definitely he shouldn't make it. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, I could make it. Well, maybe yeah, where, where would you would you slot in a right back or? I I'd, I'd be left back, left back, back in the, in the locker room? left back in the locker room. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> the old ones are the best, as no, Wayne think, Rooney likes to say. I, I was thinking about this week, and I was thinking about who else you could include here. I like when I was thinking about this, one of the things I was that was I was going through my mind is what would a Whitecaps Canadian eleven that um, came through the residency and like got a first team contract team look like I know you have some players like that like Rush mm. and, and uh, well you'd have Carducci and, and goal and not, but yeah um, and, and Alfonso of course and Theo so four you have four already but no it's, it's hard to think of like okay Maxime obviously you can't there's there's no other there's no other option there yeah unfortunately I could see David Edgar replacing Cornelius in this team yeah I Based see on two on, things one 
I know his contributions to the Whitecaps were limited. Yeah. To be to be fair, so so far have been DCs. Yeah. Uh, um, and Ed- then, Edgar had and, eight appearances because of the injury. Right. And then and then if you're looking at it from career wise, well, yeah, Edgar would probably be better. Have, you know, prefer to have him. Yeah. Um, that's that's one that stands out just a little bit. Yeah. That that uh, was the the difficult kind of balance with that as well. I think possibly in years to come, Ryan Raposo would make this team if he if he continues oh, yeah. the trajectory you hope for for him. Yeah, that might be a fair a fair show. It'll be interesting. Oh, I think you did. A, I think you did a good job. Yeah, do do this in another five or ten years. It'll be interesting to see if if everything that they keep saying they want to do actually finally comes to fruition with this team. But I I don't know. I'm also going to do a. I was going to, I wanted to do an international 11. I thought yeah. about a European 11, a South American 11. It's difficult though because we've only had certain goalkeepers from certain countries, so that kind of takes away from that. But I'll, I'll do a few more ones. And I want to do an NASL and a, a kind of D2 USL, CSL one as well. An American 11, obviously, you can do, and a, an international one you can do. Yeah, I'm American just, I'm I'd looked at. That you, you messaged me to say that Matthias Labo takes your second central midfield spot ahead of Gershon Kofi as yeah. opposed to both of them playing together with Pedro Morales. I don't want it too defensive. If I, The American one, though, he, right, here's the last question I'll ask you in this. In the American one, do you include Stephen Betashur? He's born in America, he's an American citizen, but he represents Iran. Yeah, so that's just, I mean, you got to set some parameters. So if he, if you're including people born in the country, then absolutely. Yeah, I think if, so. If, nation they are connected to internationalized then obviously you can't but uh otherwise i'm trying to think west knight is a sentimental favorite but not didn't contribute as much as beta bilal duckett or, or jonathan <laughs> leathers neither of them did enough Bilal duckett technically was not a right back he was a center back but you're right he did i think cover it right back a little bit yeah i mean who didn't cover it right back in 2011 oh yeah it was or, right back for late So I would definitely go with Beta because I, I had him in my team of the decade. Okay. So. Right, right. Yeah. The other thing is Liam Pio, you could put it left back if you really wanted to because he played there more like in his professional career played far more left back than right back even though he's very footed. But I had your friend there, Alan. Yeah, that's, no, no, that's, yeah, I would choose Alan over Liam Pio left back too. But he can also play centre back if you need it. Or Ali Adnan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, this yeah. is so this beta, is so tough. You should make beta American. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll do that. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that is it for tonight's show. Thanks for joining us throughout it, Zach. Just before we go, just let everyone know where they can find you online. For me on Twitter, it's at Zachary AM. I'm Michael McCall. You can find me on Twitter at AFTN Canada. Follow us on Instagram at AFTN Soccer. And check out our YouTube channel, AFTN Canada. Like, subscribe, share, all that stuff that you need for the algorithms. But that is it for tonight's show. Thank you so much for listening. Another long one I know, but hopefully you've enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with another Pat show. But until then, thanks for listening. Take care, stay home, stay safe, and wash your hands. Bye everyone. (laughs) 
Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life. Mm-hmm.